The question is, what's required to sell your script in the current marketplace? Last time we visited with you, Corey, you talked to us about the six script cycles and having pitch-perfect, authentic scripts. Have things changed? Things have just gotten better. And to really put things in perspective, I started teaching right during the writer's strike to 2007, and especially after the writer's strike, it was bleak. Uh, there were writers with impressive credits who couldn't get work. Uh, it was nearly impossible to sell a script. All the TV was almost all reality TV. There was very little scripted. The studios were all finalizing their consolidation and they just weren't making movies. Back then it was like if a good month was one or two of my students selling a pitch or an original script, that was a good month. Um, in the last week I've had 21 students sell uh, pitches or pilot scripts. That's a pretty normal week. So to put this in perspective, around 2002 HBO their entire budget, all in for original content, was about five hundred, uh, about five hundred million dollars, which is a lot of money. This year, uh, Netflix will be spending about fifteen to sixteen billion dollars. Amazon's about six billion dollars. So those just Netflix and Amazon are spending twenty-one, twenty-two billion dollars, and everyone else is trying to catch up to them. There's never been so much content sold. There's never been such an insatiable demand for original material. Now that said, while it's far easier to sell a script than it used to, it's still not easy. It's never easy to sell an original script, especially for an unknown writer who doesn't have a track record. It's easier, but it's not necessarily easy. But there are things that people can do to give themselves a much better chance. So one of them is to definitely understand how to uh, properly set up and launch an engine in the pilot. So a pilot script does not have a proper engine it's a pilot, it's not a TV show. Uh, an engine is what is going to propel the drama or the comedy. It's what's going to organically propel the content for many, many episodes, ideally many, many seasons. And whenever I bring in executives and producers to my UCLA classes, they'll say like one of the biggest ways you can tell an amateur is they don't have a proper engine built into the pilot. So that's one thing that's absolutely critical and probably only 20% of writers are doing that. So 80% of writers they might have the most amazing characters and world and story, but without that engine, it's not a TV show. It's just a one-off script. I'm going to put out a bunch of content on engine, so if anyone's interested, they can email my assistant, lisa at coreymandel.net, and she can get you that information. So let's say you have an engine. Then obviously, you need amazing characters and an amazing story. There are a lot of writers who are really strong on one side of that, but weaker on the other. So they're writers who can create really compelling characters that we love and we want to spend time with, but their stories somehow flop, just they're not where they need to be. And there's other writers who can come up with really strong stories with great twists and great escalations, but their characters either all have the same voice or just somehow they're just not authentically compelling enough to really pull us in and want to spend time with them, which is critical for a TV show. The absolute essential way to overcome that is a training process of creative integration. And I talked about that a couple years ago uh, at Film Courage. So you can go back and check out that video. It's called Creative Integration. And if you haven't seen it, I'd actually highly suggest you give that a look. So let's say you have a really strong engine. Let's say you have great characters. You have great story. The next thing you want to be making sure is that you're nailing the genre. And a lot of writers will fall a little short here. So if it's a comedy, 
we, are, we need to be laughing out loud multiple times. I know many agents that say, if I don't laugh out loud at least six times when I read your script, I'm not signing you if you're a comedy writer. Uh, I worked with a couple writers recently who wrote horror scripts, horror pilot scripts. And so what I challenge them is to write the script in such a way that if someone's reading the script alone, especially at night, they're going to stop and they're going to go to their boyfriends or their girlfriends or a coffee shop because they don't want to read the script all alone because it's scaring the bejesus out of them. And they really embrace that. And that's, that's absolutely what they went for. And both those scripts ended up selling. If you're writing a um, police procedural, uh, a homicide detective trying to solve a murder, when we read your script, we should feel like you were a homicide detective in so much as like really feeling like this is someone who really knows they've been there, this feels real. That doesn't mean that you have to have been a homicide detective, but it means you need to have done your research and know how to develop characters in such a way that when we read your script, it at least feels like you were a homicide detective. So there are a lot of writers who are funny or dramatic or horrific, and they're they're really good at the genre, but they're not amazing. So you really want to make sure you can go that extra mile. So having a really strong engine is absolutely required in the marketplace, compelling characters and story, and nailing the genre. But the one thing that is probably most important is the concept, especially if you're a newer writer. And having a high impact concept or high concept where in one or two or three lines, the marketplace, producers or executives are, are thinking, there's something unique here, and this is a great idea for a TV show. And so having that concept is absolutely essential. And what writers really want to focus on is proof of concept. And so let me tell you a true story. So there is a, uh, a manager, I love her. She has one of the best track records of developing new writers and launching their careers. So this is what she does. So imagine you just got signed by this manager. So what she says is, be home tonight at 11 o'clock. So you just got signed by this manager, you're excited, 11 o'clock, you're at home, like, okay, what's, and there's a knock on the door. You open it up, there's a messenger or courier with a box, you have to sign for it. And you put the box down and you open it up and what's inside, 20 scripts. And there's a note from the manager, it says, read all these scripts, be prepared to discuss, particularly the concepts, tomorrow morning, 8.30, my office. Okay, so now it's 11.08, you've got 20 scripts, you start reading. Now the reason she does this is imagine it's 2, 2.30 in the morning. You've read most of the scripts, you're bone tired. You've got three scripts left. You grab one of them, you start reading, the characters are great, the dialogue's great, it's making you laugh. You get through five pages, seven pages, you don't know what the concept is. You get through 10 pages, you get through 12 pages. You don't know what the concept for the show is. You get really frustrated. You start to really hate that writer. And at some point, you just start skimming, trying to figure out the concept. And you're just so overwhelmingly exhausted and frustrated. When the writer shows up to the manager the next morning, the manager doesn't want to talk about any of the scripts. What she wanted the writer to do was have that experience. Because that's the experience that the development executive or the producer has. They're going home on Friday with a pile of scripts. And especially if you're an unknown writer who hasn't proven yourself, if they start reading your script, if they don't know what the concept is, because you have to understand that a pilot script is a selling document. It's different from what you're actually going to see if they buy it and make the show. The script you write, its job is to sell. 
And the concept is what differentiates this project. Think about how much TV there is. It's so overwhelming. We can't watch all of the TV. So the concept really, it's like the brand. It differentiates what this project is. So they want to hit that hard and they want to hit that fast. And I know a lot of managers or agents that will tell their, especially their newer clients, by page 10, you have to nail the concept where someone who reads the script knows what the show, what, it, what the concept for the show is. It has to be there by page 10. I know a lot of managers will say that. I don't think it actually has to be there by page 10, but I think it wants to be there really as fast as possible. And a lot of writers will write the pilot where it's not to the very end of the pilot, or sometimes even the second episode, until you actually know what the concept is. So proof of concept is get that concept across to the reader as fast as possible and make it as compelling as possible. A lot of writers, and I don't think they realize they do this, is they can pull their punches a little bit. They can get a little nervous. So there was a movie a while ago now called Bad Santa. Very dark, inappropriate, um, about the worst Santa ever who doesn't look like a mall Santa. He's drunk, he's hitting on the, the moms, and that's, that's the tame stuff. I mean, it is crude and so inappropriate. And if you love Christmas and you cherish Christmas, you're gonna hate this concept. But if you're in a dark mood and you're like a movie that just goes all in on making fun of Christmas in the worst possible way, there's gonna be people who are gonna be like, now that's a great idea. And that writer did not pull his punches. What a lot of writers would do is say, well, there are gonna be people that might be offended. Let me not quite go so far into this so that they can, maybe they'll like it. But you're not trying to get the people who aren't fans to like it a little bit more. Your big concern should be, there are people out there that are gonna say the idea of a guy who sells crystal meth and sells it, who, who blackmails his former student that he flunked out to, to cook meth with him, this very dark train wreck of a TV show. Someone out there says, that is just so amazingly interesting. That's your audience. And your concern shouldn't be that you might offend some people. Your concern is that your constituency would have bought it if you'd gone all in, if you just absolutely commit. You know, when The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel was being developed, everyone in the industry was saying, we need dark, we need edgy. No one wanted light. The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel is so sweet and it is just so beautiful and it is so not edgy. And that writer just went for it. I mean, she relished in it. And there were, I know people that say, oh, I don't watch that show, it's too sweet for me. And I know a lot of people, myself included, who love that show. You know, given the world, everything that's going on in the world, for me, watching that show is like that delicious piece of dessert at the end of the day. So whatever your concept is, proof of concept is establish it early, and prove to us, prove to the industry, prove to the marketplace that this is a great concept. So if you're doing catastrophe and you're saying, look, it's two people who meet and get married and they don't live happily ever after. It is the hell of marriage if you marry the wrong person, where every mundane thing in life is the, just insufferable. Then, and you're saying what's gonna make this compelling is that people are gonna love these two characters and this dark comedy then you've got to nail that dark comedy real early on to prove to us that this is a TV show. I mean, imagine the, 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 the people who were developing Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. 
It's these very immature, narcissistic characters that make mountains out of molehills, but nothing happens. No one learns a lesson, nothing changes. It's what life is really like. It's a sitcom based on reality. I could see a lot of writers going, oh, a show about nothing. I better make it, at least in the pilot, about a little something because they would be nervous. So go all in on your concept and establish it as early as possible. That's proof of concept. I know a lot of managers who uh, they'll bring in their writers and they'll say, where does the concept launch? Where in this script is it clear what the concept for this show is? And the writer says, page 12. They'll take the first 12 pages, the first 12 pages, rip it out of the script, and all they'll do is read those 12 pages. And at the end, they're like, how much do I understand and how excited I am about this concept? And they'll, they'll share it around the office to other people. Because if people are not all in on this concept, they're not going to keep reading. So it doesn't really matter the rest of the script. Now, that said, let's say you have a great concept and you nailed it early. And when people get there, they're like, or at least your constituency, the people who would love that concept are like, now that's a great concept for a show. You're gonna to need to have an engine. The characters in the story need to unfold. I'm not saying all that stuff isn't important. I'm just saying really focus on your concept. Really go all in, do not pull your punches. And especially as a new writer, nail it early. Earlier than you want to so that the, the marketplace can quickly know, here's the concept for the show. And if it's not a concept they're interested in, they won't keep reading, they won't waste their time because it's not for them. If it is a concept they're interested in, they're gonna be, wow. Then they'll read the rest of the script to see if you have all those other pieces. And just the last thing I'll say is, you know, there are writers who are idea machines. They just come up with so many really great concepts. There are other writers that really struggle to come up with high concepts. There are specific training. There is specific tools that people can use to come up with more and more high concepts. And again, I would direct you to my assistant, Lisa at CoreyMandel.net, and she could definitely provide you some more information on that front. Can we give an example of a concept versus an engine with one of these shows, whether it's Breaking Bad, Mr. Robot, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? The problem is um, that an engine would take probably 30 minutes to break down what an engine is and how it works, so we wouldn't have time to do that. I mean, I can talk about concepts, but right. to contrast it to an engine. I guess I'm just struggling with, it seems to me that the concept is the engine, but maybe I'm missing something. So, so just trying to figure out, you know, with Breaking Bad, right, we get what the concept is, guys sort of at his wit's end, financially and health-wise, he needs to turn things right. around, he's willing to make sort of this deal with the devil. But then what is the engine? The engine is you're introducing these different characters. Yeah, so unfortunately that's why I was um, sending people to the site, because it's, it's a little bit more complex what an engine is, it's hard to do that quickly. I mean, the, the metaphor would be, so in Breaking Bad, the concept is, so we know what this show is, and we know where it's gonna go. The engine is what propels the show there. And that is, there's a sister, there's a family, there's Jesse, no? Okay. No, it, it's, okay. it's trickier than that. It's a little okay. trickier okay. than that. Okay, yeah, just trying to pinpoint, how do I know that, I could have a great concept, but how do I know this metaphorical engine is working? and it's not like a crap engine and it's gonna just sputter out right. 
And so that's why I'm just trying to figure out what. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to send you uh, some video content. And you know, if you're really, I'm happy to do okay. that to you okay. personally. But in terms of now, it's it's it would be beyond the our, beyond the scope. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the but the concept and engine are two different things. Yes. Two different things. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for screenwriters to know about selling their screenplay before they sit down and write their screenplay? That's a really smart and a really great question. So part of it is, again, that as much as we would love this scenario that someone would read our pilot script and say, yes, and write a check and make it, that just almost never happens. The best case scenario is someone reads the script and then they're going to meet with you and they're going to want to ask you questions. And they want to, the script is proving the concept. It's proving the characters that you know how to write characters and these are really compelling characters and that it's a compelling role, then there's an engine. So they know this thing has potential, but they're gonna really wanna know about the first year. Because every production company has had an experience early on of buying a pilot script that they loved, and then when they tried to develop it, it just, they can't, no one can figure out how to get a season or multiple seasons of a show. So in the past several years, I know very few writers, including highly established writers, who haven't gone through the following experience that with a pitch or a spec script, they'll end up in a room with multiple executives and they're gonna ask a lot of questions about the first season. They're gonna to wanna to know what are we watching in the first season? They're gonna to wanna to make sure that there is a compelling first season. Now some executives are gonna to wanna to see a breakdown of every episode. Other executives are just gonna to wanna to see some big arcs. Other executives are just gonna to wanna to get a big high level picture to know that there's a first season and they really wanna know what's the main thing we're gonna be watching. So in The Marvelous, Miss, Marvelous Mrs. Meisel, there's several things we're watching over the first season, but the main thing that we're watching is The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel going from being a housewife who's very, um, you know, very kind of a very private person to becoming a stand-up comic, putting the work to be a stand-up comic. That's the main thing, not the only thing, the main thing we're going to be watching in the first season. In Fleabag season two, the main thing we're going to be watching is Fleabag relentlessly pursuing having sex with this priest. Other things are going on in the, but that's the main through line. They want to know what the main through line and the main thing that they're, that they're going to be watching. And the reason you want to figure that out before you write your pilot is twofold. First of all, so after you write your pilot, when you get pulled in to these meetings, you have a really smart answer. But secondly, remember your pilot launches the first season. So if the first season is Fleabag pursuing this priest or Mrs. Meisel doing the work to become a stand-up comic, that needs to be launched in the pilot. So by the time we're done with the pilot episode, Fleabag is pursuing that priest and we know why she's doing it and we are absolutely enthralled with seeing how that plays out. And at the end of the pilot episode of The Marvelous Miss Meisel, we're like, oh, the last woman in the world who would ever do stand-up comic. A woman who's just terrified and lives her life where she can never be rejected. She's the perfect wife. She's the perfect daughter. She's the perfect friend. So no one would ever reject her. She's going to try to be a stand-up comic in the 1950s <laughs> when women aren't allowed to be stand-up comics, especially the way that she wants to do it, which is the Lenny Bruce style. So at the end of that, we have to be in love with seeing her on stage and going, that's, I wanna go on that journey. So if you don't know your first season and you don't know how you're gonna sell it, you don't know how to do a pilot. 
people will come to me for a consultation and they'll, I'll read their pilot and I'll start asking them about the first year. They can't answer me. That would be like going to someone and saying, I wrote the first scene of a feature script. Will you read it? Is that the right first scene for my feature? And you say, well, I don't know. What is your feature? Where does it go? And they say, oh, I don't know. I just got the first scene. That, that is why pilots are so tricky. There are a lot of writers who can write on shows that have been structured and they're amazing, but they can't create a successful pilot. A pilot works on double dimensions. So first of all, the pilot episode has to pull in strangers, make them absolutely want to keep reading, relentlessly make us want to keep reading, then deliver us to an ending that exceeds our expectations, a beginning, a middle, and a self-contained story. Additionally, the pilot is the beginning of a larger story, which is season one. Season one is the beginning of the series, but let's just talk about season one. So a pilot launches the first season. So if you don't know the first season, if you don't know the engine and you don't know the concept, and you don't know how you're gonna sell this in the room, then you don't know how, you don't know what the right pilot episode is. Because the pilot episode is not the first thing we're gonna be watching necessarily on the show. It is a selling document to get people excited to wanna meet with you. You write the pilot so you can pitch the show. You write the pilot to prove the concept and the characters and the world and the story, and then you pitch the show. So, it's absolutely essential in TV that people understand how they're selling the show, where it's gonna be positioned, the engine, the concept, what's gonna happen in the first year, because that will lead them to know the right way to design and execute on their pilot. So I'm thinking of like, let's say Judd Apatow's This Is 40, which was just hilarious. If I were to then pitch that, and then it's a masterpiece for that, two hours, whatever it was, but then I don't know where there's gonna be continuations yeah. of that story. I don't know what what's gonna keep happening over and over again. Same thing with like, let's say Meet the Fockers. I know there's been, what, three films about that? Like yeah. Little Fockers, and the, hilarious again, but how am I gonna turn that, You know, how many Christmas dinners can yeah. I have where something goes wrong right. over and over and over again? So it's gotta be something where there's going to be, and I guess that's where the engine comes into play, yeah. but there's gonna be like a continuous, right. So somebody going to do stand-up night after night in the mm -hmm. 50s when they could be shut down by law enforcement or whatever, that there's gonna be incidents over and over and over again to, to test that show. Whereas a Christmas dinner, a family birthday party, that's hilarious, but it just goes wrong. There, I need to have something more. Right, and you mentioned Judd Apatow. So if Judd Apatow or Vince Gilligan or Genji Cohen come in and they have a pilot, they probably already have the show figured out, but if they didn't, um, much more likely that someone will say, you'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, take that, we'll, we'll take that ride with you. But if you're not yet have that track record, it's ridiculous to think that someone's gonna invest the money and go on that ride with you. So again, it's so important. And, and I don't know, uh, uh, I have a lot of students or former students who sell a lot of original material and they always start figuring out the season one and then back into the pilot. Ah, okay. And sort of figure out your screenplay then figure out how to open it. Oh, interesting. Establish who those characters are, their personality. And where parts. it's going and what makes it interesting so that that's what the, the pilot has to really prove that this has somewhere to go and it's gonna be really interesting to people. And going from a pilot to a season is, 
it's not impossible, but it, it's a much lower probability, harder way to do it. Right, so with Marvelous Mrs. Meisel, just knowing all of the characters that are in stand-up comedy world and, and clubs and frequenting and all, you know, all the hecklers and things, so there's so many opportunities to back that character in to an interesting That's story. certainly part of it. Right, right, whereas a family dinner and you know, somebody insults an in-law, that can only go so far kind of thing. That, that's a, that's as, a, as a full TV show. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the difference between a feature and a TV show. Got it. Okay, great. How to properly test your script, the absolute importance of script testing. What, right. is, what is script testing? Script, script testing, so when I was starting out, um, a manager did this for me and I'll forever be grateful. So the way it works is most people, they'll write a script and they'll give it to their friends, their writing group, people they trust and they want feedback. You know, what's working, what's not working, critique, suggestions, way to improve it. And what I was taught, and I see a lot of the more successful writers working that way, working this way, is they don't start there. What they start with is script testing. And what script testing is, is the first thing is you realize that when you write a script, you experience a movie, you experience characters. And when someone reads your script, a movie plays in their head and they experience the story and they experience characters. And a lot of people make the assumption that the movie that plays in my head is really similar to the movie that plays in your head. Script testing is strategically asking a series of questions to find out what movie is playing in someone else's head. What story are they watching? What's happening? Why is it happening? Why is it interesting or not interesting? Who are the characters? What are the, how are they experiencing the characters? How would they describe the characters? Are they engaged with the characters? Or are they not engaged with the characters? And it's literally being able to track what they're experiencing story and character-wise as they move through your script. And what script testing uh, aims for is not to know if someone likes your script, loves it, hates it, um, suggestions, critique, not at first. The first is, are they experiencing what I'm experiencing? And if they're not, why not? What are they experiencing different from me? So when I first started teaching at UCLA, I, did a, um, I had everyone bring in seven copies of their script. And so let's say you and I would switch scripts. I'd give you seven copies of my script. You'd give me seven copies of your script. You would take my seven copies and go to seven of your friends and say, hey, will you read a script by someone in my class? I haven't read it. And you don't have to have anything smart to say. You don't have to give feedback. You just have to answer questions about what you experienced when you read the script. And you really make it clear that you're not testing their reading comprehension. It's testing the writer's ability to have it come off the page. And so let's say seven of your friends say, okay, I'll do that. So they read my script. And then I would arm you with a series of questions that you would ask those writers and you would record the, the conversation. And it's really important that you haven't read the script because you'll ask a question about the story or the character and one of your friends would start to give an answer and then say, is that right? And you would say, I don't know, I didn't read the script. And so at some point they'll just relax and they'll just tell you what they experienced. And you record that, all seven of your friends, and then you'd come back to class and give me the recordings and I would do the same for you. And then I would have each writer transcribe the recordings because you really have to hear it if you transcribe it. 
I have to admit, when I first started teaching at UCLA, there were things I did that were successful. There were things that, there was a lot of trial and error when I first started teaching. This was a real mixed bag because people were so demoralized. To, to, to have a script they poured heart and soul into, characters they loved more than anything, and this is their character, but everyone else was seeing this. And this is like, no, this is despicable, and this was an amazing character. And it, a lot of people come up to me and they're like, you know, be careful of Julie in the class, because I think there's something <laughs> wrong with Julie, because Julie's friends are like all schizophrenic. I'm telling you, because look at the feedback. Her friends are, so there was that. There was one person who just dropped out of an MFA program. She did come back. Oh, and then right. I had another woman threaten to kill herself. Oh, no. She didn't. But that's when I stopped doing this exercise mandatory, and I would make it you know, voluntary. Yeah. Um, she did not kill herself. Oh, good. Um, a lot of people who came out of that class went on to be working writers, and they said that this experience was the most painful experience they had as a writer, but the most valuable, because they didn't realize that not everything that they were putting on the page was fully coming off the page to other people. And there are so many people that write scripts that get rejected in the marketplace, or they don't get an agent to represent them or a manager, and they feel like, okay, my characters are story, something's not strong enough. That might be true, and it might not be true. It might be that if people actually fully experience your characters and your story, they would have fallen in love with it, but they didn't. Here's a true story. Now, this is not a rep this is not an average representation because this is a little clean and easy. It's not usually this clean and easy, but it'll it'll illustrate a point. So, an agent sent me a writer like, about not quite a year ago, close to a year ago, and is a really talented writer who's staffed on some really prestigious shows, but had never been able to sell original content. Always, her stuff was great, but it just wasn't great enough. So the, the manager had soft, had soft shown, had shown the script to some people in the industry that uh, he trusted to sort of unofficially get feedback on it. And people love, there's two main characters. They love this character, they love the concept, they love the engine, they love where this goes, but the second main character found annoying, just honestly, like, if this character wasn't in the story, I would really be interested in this, but this character just ruined it for me. Um, and that was hard for the writer to hear because this character was the main character as far as she was concerned, and it was uh, sort of a reflection of, it was sort of an autobiographically, emotionally-based character to her. So that always hurts because then they're not just rejecting your writing, it feels like they're rejecting you. So what I do when I work with a writer is instead of reading their script and then giving them my opinions, I always start with what, I wanna know the movie that plays in their head. I wanna know how they experience the story and the characters to see where it's not coming off the page the way they see it. And I knew, because she shared with me, that this character was the main issue. So I started with this character and I just asked her a series of questions, describe the character to me. And then whenever she said, I said, well, why is the character this way? And why, does, why is the character this way? And what does the character love more than anything in the world? And why is that? And what do they fear more than anything in the world? And why is that? And when this happened in the script, why did the character do it? And why do you find that so compelling? And when the character did this, why? And so it was, it was a good 30 to 40 minutes. And when we were done, I could, I could identify two pieces of essential context 
And let me just stop and define how I would define essential context. I would define essential context as everything the audience, reader or viewer, everything the audience needs to know or experience to understand what's happening, why it's happening, and why they should care. And that's true for the story and for the character. And I was able to identify two pieces of essential context that were not in the script. There was something about the character's motivation for the main thing they were trying to achieve that it wasn't clear to a reader. And there was also um, something about the character's backstory that I think was really important. The writer kept talking about this as part of why she cared so much about the character, and it wasn't clear in the script. And at first the writer was like, well, of course it's clear. And then I would ask them to highlight where it's clear. And then in doing that, the writer was able to realize, oh, it's, it's implied. But I could see how now someone may not get that. And then the, the other piece of essential context was gone. I mean, it, I'm sorry, in an original draft it was there, but as she rewrote it and rewrote it, it somehow got removed. This is a really common experience. It just wasn't there. And she didn't catch that, because when she reads her script, the movie that, and the characters that play in her head, she knows all of this. She loves these characters. She knows exactly, this character is her, so of course she knows exactly why the character is doing it. Now, again, um, this punchline is, is really clean and simple. It's not usually this clean and simple, but with this particular writer, and again, three or four uh, very senior people in the industry at, at production companies had read the script and said, really like this, really love this, but this character ruins it for me. Okay, we just went in, well, she just went in and she changed one line of dialogue to make something crystal clear and then she added a scene. It was about a two-page scene to get that essential context across in the script. So one, change, one line of dialogue and added a new scene that was about two pages and the purpose of this page, these two pages was to make this critical missing essential context clear. Her in her backstory. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, actually, the it was the, her motivation. It was the line dialogue for her backstory. But yeah. So both both what the the two things that she knew that we didn't know or experience were remedied with a change of dialogue and adding a two page scene. Sent it to her manager. Sent it to actually a few of the people she sent it to. Some of the people had already seen it, and and he sent it to some new people. And everybody loved this character. And so this is, this is one of my all-time favorite characters. And there was actually multiple, there were multiple bids for that script. Now, it's unfortunately not usually as such that after you do script testing, you realize I change one line of dialogue, and I just add this one little scene, and the script goes from a pass to multiple bids. But that can be the case. Usually there's more, there's more missing essential context, so it's a little messier than this. So it's usually multiple things that are gonna to have to be addressed. And that's the whole key to script testing, is to figure out where people are not experiencing what you're intending and why, and it almost always comes to essential context. And then it's figuring out how to rewrite the script. So here's a true story. Um, that the writers have publicly talked about, the writers of, um, of uh, Game of Thrones. So a lot of people probably know this, maybe some people don't. They originally shot that pilot and then decided to redo the whole thing because they didn't like some of the casting. And so they literally reshot the pilot, which gave the showrunners the opportunity to screen the original pilot for people. 
And they screened it for some friends and they realized there was a missing piece of essential context. So people who watched the original episode, the original pilot that never aired, when they got to the end, they knew that the Cer Cersei, the queen, was having an affair with Jamie, who was uh, like her main bodyguard. There, there's, a, there's a term for what he was, like the, the head of the queen's guard. So there's an official term. And that they were having inappropriate relations because the queen's married to the king. But people didn't know that that was her brother. And that whole season doesn't necessarily work in the same way without knowing that because that's the stakes of the show. The stakes of the show is that Cersei will go to any length to make sure that nobody knows her children are illegitimate in that way and illegitimate heirs to the throne. So they caught that and then of course when they went to redo the pilot they could rewrite and reshoot that. So I, this is what I was told, only an idiot this, is, this isn't me talking, this was the manager talking to me. Only an idiot would take a script out to the marketplace that they haven't properly tested to see if you have to rewrite, redesign, reshoot. And testing again is making sure that is, are strangers who don't know what you're going for, when they read your script, do they experience the story you experience? Do they experience the characters you experience? If so, then you certainly want to know well, what do you think? Do you have suggestions? Do you have critiques? You know, where did, did it hold your interest? Like, you want to know all that stuff after you know that um, people are experiencing what you're experiencing. In the workshop that I teach, that I just came from uh, last night, we did an exercise where they uh, literally wrote a three to four page story. So like a scene, but not a scene in a script, like, like a short film, three to four pages as an as a exercise. And they have a main character who's trying to achieve something, and they have reasons, very motivated, why you know stakes to achieve it. And there's another character opposes, and they have really strong reasons why they oppose. Three to four pages, and then everyone tested their three to four pages to see if everyone could fully see and experience all of the essential context. And with two exceptions, everyone. Uh, discovered that there was at least one piece of essential context that wasn't being clear in a three to four page. The two people who nailed it are both working writers. I mean, one's an executive producer and one's a staff writer uh, on a really successful show. So they've been trained that way. So it, was, it is so important to test your scripts. And if anyone wants the questions, um, very easy. Go to my website, uh, coreymandel.net, and just sign up for the newsletter and the autoresponder will give you the questions. So. Um, I highly recommend um, after you've poured heart and soul in your script and you, when you read it, you're like, okay, this is the movie or this is the TV show that I want to create. This is exactly what I'm going for. I love it. Now, go test it and see what other people are experiencing because when it does go out to the marketplace, I want it to be your characters. I want it to be your story. I want it to be the best possible version of what you're going for. So make sure by, by testing. With the student that you had where she wrote this sort of semi-autobiographical story and it seemed like the sidekick character or whatever was the likable one and the protagonist was the one that people were off-putted by, or it was too off-putting, once she changed a few things, one-line dialogue you said and, and a two-page scene. scene or yeah, something, yeah. Um, then people felt more empathy toward so, that main character? You know, it'd be like, um, 
so in real life, and you meet someone, and um, let's say that they just rub you the wrong way, and you just, for whatever reason, you just don't want to spend time with them, and you just don't care about them. But then you find out that they're really struggling because they just lost their father to cancer, a really terrible cancer, and they're just they're having troubles, and they're in that mourning period. And let's just say that you lost your father to cancer. You immediately feel different about that person. Sure. You, right? And it just changes your entire dynamic. Now, imagine that you meet this person, and you start to spend time with them, and you never know that they just lost their father to cancer. You're going to have a very different experience right. with them. So in this case, it, her character, when you really understood why she was struggling, why she was making some poor decisions. It changed how you felt about her. It changed how you understood it. And, the, and people went from thinking this is a very, very self-centered character who just treats people poorly to this is a character who's in a really bad space and they're doing their best and they actually are trying to protect their friend, but they're doing it in the wrong way. But it's, and it just changed how everyone felt about that Got character. It. Okay. I mean, it could be that subtle. 98% of scripts are rejected by the industry after the first scene? Yeah. So what are screenwriters doing wrong? And what, what, like, what's so horrible about, what's so terrible about these scenes? Yeah. So when I was a studio reader, so when I was in film school with a crazy dream to be a writer, I was working as a studio reader. And what we were trained is read the first two scenes. Let me step back. If a script came in by the Coen brothers or Quentin Tarantino, you, you're reading that whole script. And if you don't like it, you're reading it again to see what's wrong with you. And then you're calling your friends who read it. Like, you taking this very seriously because you're giving them extreme benefit of the doubt. But when, I was taught when you're reading a script by someone, an unknown writer, a new writer, read the first two scenes and stop. And ask yourself, do I have to keep reading? And if the answer is no, then don't. I have a lot of students who are readers now, and they, they, do, they have the one scene, I guess, you know, tension spans have shrunken with Twitter and everything. So they read one scene. I think, here's what I would say. If I read a, a, a scene of a script, and it doesn't absolutely make me want to read the next scene, I know this writer is not going to be successful script-wide. It's not going to get better. If you, if you your first scene, is like your interviews. If, if someone goes to a job interview for a job they really want, they're late, they're disheveled, they reek of alcohol, they're doing inappropriate jokes, they're just doing everything wrong, right? You're interviewing this person, you're like, okay, this is this person on their best behavior. <laughs> <laughs> what are they gonna be like on a bad day? Or you know, you go on a first date, right? And this person is a disaster. You're like, this is them on their best behavior. Yeah. Your first scene, is if you know anything about writing, it's your first impression, that is you on your best behavior. Oh, I like that. So if your first scene, it, it doesn't have conflict, which is something I believe I talked about in a previous uh, Film Courage video. Otherwise, there's a lot on my site about that. Or the characters don't feel like compelling characters. Or it's supposed to be funny, but it's not. Like all the stuff we were talking about, um, you know, in terms of what you're selling with uh, a pilot script. Now, I'm not looking for an engine. I don't need to have the concept, but it bet you better nail the genre. 
and and the characters better be characters I absolutely want to spend time with, and you better know how to write in compelling conflict. Now, let's say someone can do all of that. That doesn't mean that the whole script is going to be great. It means it might. And you know, one of the things, and by the way, I really would recommend for anyone who's serious about being a writer, if possible, try to go on the other side of the fence for six months. Try to be a, uh, a reader, someone who evaluates scripts for six months. You can do it for the, um, for the, uh, like the, the writing competitions, but if possible, especially if you live in LA, I would try to do it for an agency, a management company, a production company, producer, someone who's in the industry, someone who's involved with buying the projects. And I always tell people do it for six months, but not a day longer, because you'll lose your soul. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that, what I mean is most people, most writers who start down that path, if they stay on that path too long, they end up becoming executives or producers and they stop writing. And, and, and maybe they're happier for that. Um, but I think six months is a great time to learn what it's like to be on the other side of the fence because as a writer, your job is to write scripts that total strangers will read and fall so in love with that they're willing to go to their boss and go to bat for you. And then I'll, and I'll put it in a, a, an even more important way. When I was starting out, I thought the key was I had to get a manager and then an agent. I had to get people who were out there um, advocating for me, because I can't do that. You know, As an unknown writer, I can't call up Warner Brothers or Netflix and say, hey, you don't know me, but I wrote a script and it's great. Like, you can't. First of all, they're not going to take your call. Secondly, right? <laughs> and good luck getting through. Yeah. yeah, right. Good luck getting through. But even if you do, they're like, yeah, right. So I thought I needed two people or at least one person out there advocating for me. If you're really smart, that's not your objective. Your objective is to get an army of people advocating for you. And the way to do that goes back to writing pitch perfect authentic scripts which I talked about in the previous Film Courage uh, videos. Check those out if you haven't seen those. Because when you write something that's unique, non-formulaic, with amazing characters, an engine, uh, an amazing concept, people who read it, and I was one of those people, and I have a lot of students who are these people, they will, it's a very small community, Hollywood, and they will email or call or text people and say, have you read Karen's script? Have you read this script? And they're like, no, and they're like, you should. And they send the script. It's called the script travels, where the script goes viral. And within days, everyone has read it, and it, everyone wants to meet you and know who you are, because your script has gone and everyone's buzzing about it. So when you're writing a script, the, the so I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit off tangent here, but I'll, I will bring it all together in a moment. So when I, um, First thing I do in my UCLA class, because they're, they're so overly educated, they don't realize what a liability that is. So <laughs> what I'll say is you're writing, I could do this with a feature or a TV, TV script, 60 minutes. Um, what has to happen, let's say there's four scenes in act one. What has to happen in that last scene? What's the objective of that scene? And I get incredibly smart answers, you know, it's the point of no return, it's the first crisis, it's the, it's the first subplot, it's the reverse. I mean, I get all these really smart answers. They're all wrong, but they're really smart. The answer is the fourth scene, what it must do is get total strangers to have to read the fifth scene. And the fifth scene has to get people to read the sixth. It's true of every scene. Every scene has to compel someone to read the next scene. 
And so that first scene has to get someone to read the second scene. Think about the first scene as a first date. You're not getting married on that date. They're not buying your script. The job of a first date is to get a second date. The job of a second date is to get a third date. Now, enough dates in a row, and then someone will be like, okay, like, I, I wanna get in a relationship with you. That's the moment when they're like, I will read your whole script. There'll come a point where someone will become such a fan because they'll realize here's the concept, they know where this is going, and I'm, I think that's an awesome idea for a show or a movie, love these characters, and, and these scenes are structured so tightly and in such a compelling way, I'm starting to get confidence that this person knows how to structure. And at some point, you're like, I will read this to the end. And then when you get to the end, your job is for them to fall in love. And when they fall in love, that's when they will tell everyone about your script. It's like you're watching a TV show that you love and no one else is watching it. You're telling all your friends, oh, you gotta watch this show, you gotta watch this show. We do that with scripts. So that's your job. So now, that, that statistic of 98%, sometimes people get mad at me and, and, or they wanna debate that number. So just to be clear, that's not my number. I didn't come up, if, you, if you're upset, don't direct it at me. I am just the messenger. It's very simple. Uh, I've been teaching at UCLA since 2007. I have brought in countless executives, producers, agents, managers. I always ask these people, the gatekeepers, when you get a script from a writer that's not a current client and not an established writer, a new writer, how long do you read to then decide if you're gonna keep reading? And they always say one or two scenes. I have heard people say the first 10 pages, they were in a good mood, but it's usually one or two scenes. I ask those people, what percentage of the time do you keep reading? And I have heard um, 1%, 2%, far less than 1%. And it probably averages out to about 1%, but I tried to be a little more optimistic and I made it 2%. So when I say 98% of non-established writers if they move mountains to get their script into the marketplace, 98% of the time people stop reading after one or two scenes. That is solely based on what all of these producers, agents, and managers, and what my experience was many years ago as a reader. So anyone who takes offense or doesn't like that number, I didn't come up with it. I am the messenger. Sure, sure. And, um, and then I, I will, when I teach, I'll say, how many of you right now are uh, executives? or readers or story analysts, and there's usually like six or seven hands that go up, and I go, so let me ask you. When I say only 2% of scripts are continue to be read after the first scene or two, do you think that's accurate? Do you think that's too generous? Do you think that's too pessimistic? And across the board, they'll say, you're being way too generous. You're protecting these people. It's less than 2%. Oh, wow. So that's what these people are saying. And, and why is sometimes being too smart getting in your own way? I, those yeah, are my because words, not yours. what happens is they, they learn all these rules. So the industry has changed. So the industry has dramatically changed. So it used to be that there were three or four channels and basically what everyone was doing, uh, there's um, Donald Glover had a great uh, interview on The New Yorker about this, uh, the brilliant creator and star of Atlanta. So back in the day, like up to, I don't know, 2000, 2002, whatever, you had three or four networks and that was it. 
And they were making macaroni and cheese. They were making comfort food. You come home after a long day and you want a drama, you want a comedy, you want a spiritual, whatever. And they would follow paradigms. So all the comedies were the same structure, different jokes. And the crime scenes, you know, CSI, Hollywood, CSI, Missouri, CSI, Australia, same structure, just different crime. And the idea was we're creating comfort food. And what we're going to do is put a star that you like. You like Ted Danson? We're going to do macaroni and cheese with Ted Danson. <laughs> you like good. Ellen, yeah, Ellen Jenner's? We're going to do macaroni and cheese with Ellen Jenner. And the truth is, these shows were designed to get the widest audience possible, ratings for advertising. So they wanted the shows to be watched by as many people as possible. So you want a show that doesn't offend people. You want a show that a lot of people like. And the truth is, people would watch a show and they're like, it's okay, it's not great. But they don't change the channel because they know there's nothing better in the other two or three channels. And it says Ted Danson, and I like Ted Danson, so I'll just stick with this. That's how it used to be. And now there's so much content that we know, because we have metadata, that people sample pilots and then it's like they're on a date for 10 minutes and they're like, well, who else can I date? And they're just jumping. And what in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, what determines success or failure is follow through. Simple, simply put, what percentage of the people who watch the first episode watch all the episodes? That's follow through. Because in a world of too much content, what you need is brand loyalty. You need people that will stick with your show. So Girls, I think, had about 2 million people watching it. That's not a large aggregate number, but the, I think it had one of the highest, if not the highest follow through. Well over 90-something percent of people who watched the first episode of Girls, they watched every episode of Girls. That's valuable now. Because it used to be, again, largest number possible and also to have a lot of episodes to put it into syndication. Very few shows go to syndication. There's just so much original content. So it's all about creating shows that in a world of too much content, people are going to stick with this show. And so you see that a lot of the scripts that are being bought, they're not the paradigm-driven, rule-driven script anymore. They used to be, like if you go back 15 years ago, you're an unknown writer, that's what you'd want to write if you wanted to sell something. Nowadays, as my agent, well, my former agent, we no longer have agents right now, but my former agent, WME, has repeatedly said, if you're doing a three-camera standard paradigm-driven comedy or paradigm-driven uh, procedural, Unless you've been an executive producer or above in a hit show in that space in the last three years, your script's DOA, no one's going to read it. What you need to be doing is writing a script that no one has seen before. Writing something that only you could have written and make it an elevated story. So instead of preordained plot points, the, the story unfolds organically and it's not predictable. And it feels like characters are doing what they would really be doing and saying what they'd really be saying, and it's captivating. These are the hardest scripts to write. These are the pitch-perfect, authentic scripts. But this is what the majority of scripts that are selling, these are the scripts that are selling. Now, there are paradigm and rule-driven scripts that sell, but they're predominantly written by people who are executive producers or above on those hit shows. And further, it used to be if you want to get staffed on a TV show, which is generally the entryway starting place for a TV writer to get staffed on an existing show, work your way up the ladder, you would want to write specs 
of existing shows. So if you're a comedy writer, you would write spec episodes of hit comedies or spec episodes of procedurals. Almost no showrunner in town would read that script. What they will read is original scripts. They, and here's why. They need their show to make an emotional connection to the audience to get follow through. They need writers who can create emotional attachment. They want to read your script and see that you're a magician, that you could write a script that is unique, that has characters that just, I have to keep following these characters. I have to keep reading the script. That's what they're looking for when they staff their show. I have a friend who's a showrunner, and he has a budget from uh, the streaming company for uh, nine uh, staff writers, and he only has seven because he can't find nine because there's so many shows, and everyone who's good is working, and oh. they're running shows, or they're the second. That's a big problem is getting enough really amazing writers. So the people coming out of these, these programs, in a, large a lot of the time, they have been trained to fight a war that ended seven years ago. So what these institutions are teaching was absolutely true at the time. And it's just, it's a lot harder for a big institution to sort of change course for a lot of reasons. So um, anyway, I mean, I have MFA from UCLA. I love the experience. I made a lot of great connections, a lot of great friends. Um, but, but to answer your question, um, I. Uh, I find a lot of, I have a lot of agents and managers send me writers to work with in my workshops because they're overly educated. They know all the rules, they know all the paradigms, their, their head's full of what you can do or can't do. It's ridiculous. Um, when you see what is selling, when you see what showrunners are looking for, they're looking for something that is absolutely original and captivating. They don't want the rules. They don't want the paradigms. They don't, that's, that's easy. They want someone who could create something that People is memorable, it's impactful, that you have an emotional attachment to, because they need to create shows that when someone watches it, they will keep watching that show. So almost as if you're talking about the marvelous Mrs. Meisel, Maisel, Meisel, sorry. Um, it, it, she, she's, it's almost that kind of, that, that metaphor of she was the perfect whatever, friend, mother, everything's overly sanitized, perfect, but nobody wants to watch that. They want to see somebody who's going to really yeah. like like push the envelope and offend people, possibly, maybe not, but but really like go outside the lines. Yes, that's and so really it's the same thing with the writers. It sounds like yes, that's really smart. And if we want to use Marvelous Miss Meisel, we can go a little bit deeper as a metaphor, because I think it was a brilliant metaphor in that show for writers. So we have a character who doesn't want to get rejected. So I mean, as a wife. She's taken sex classes to be perfect in bed. This is in the show. She not only does have her makeup on perfectly in her hair when she goes to bed, <laughs> but she wakes up an hour earlier. Oh, wow. Redoes her makeup and hair, gargles with mouthwash, pretends to be asleep. So when the alarm goes off and her husband wakes up, she is an angel. Um, she's the perfect daughter. She's the perfect, I mean, she's so charming and she's so wonderful, but it comes from this terrible, terrible fear of being rejected. Right. So you already know as, as creating the show, she's going to get rejected a lot by her husband and by society and her, her parents, but to the metaphor. I would say, and this, I can relate to this as a writer. It was one of my biggest struggles um, and I never overcame it. And it's part of why I stopped writing. And I see a lot of writers with this struggle. If you are so afraid of rejection, 
then it makes you or it can compel you to be the kind of person that you think people want you to be. And this could be true as a son or a daughter or a spouse or a writer. So you start writing in a way that you think is what people are looking for. And you're scared of writing in a way that could offend people. And so people who are so terrified of rejection can become the kind of person who it's hard to reject, but the person they become is not who they really are. So the fear of rejection can lead people to reject themselves. So afraid of being rejected, you reject who you truly are. In The Marvelous Miss Meisel, um, she has gone through her whole life being a perfect person. At the end of that uh, pilot, she's going to have been the worst thing of her life as her husband. Not only did he reject her, but who he rejected her for and when he did it. And she's drunk, Manischewitz wine, but she is drunk and gets on stage. And for the first time ever, that character starts to search for and to express her truth. Not as a stand-up, just because she's drunk and she does. And then Susie tells her, you are amazing, you have this talent. As the show unfolds, what's fascinating is the character exists in two spheres. Her everyday normal sphere, where she is a perfect person, and then a sphere where she will continue to find and speak her truth, and that is on stage. And really the metaphor of the show that I take is the only way to reach your full potential as a creative person, well, this would be true of anyone, but let's stay focused with writers. The only way to reach your true potential is to express who you really are through your writing, to be completely authentic and, and know that people will reject that and, and be okay with that. You have to be willing to be rejected to be authentic. And I know because I spent a decade as a studio writer um, never being authentic in my writing. And I wouldn't take any script that was close to who I was. And my agent was repeatedly saying, like, you need to spec something from your heart. And I would never do that because I was so terrified of being rejected. I knew at least if I wrote a script that wasn't me, I didn't put myself into it. If it got rejected, then my skill set, my talent was being rejected. And that was terrifying to me. But at least I wasn't being rejected. If I, if I was authentic in my writing, as I, as I knew I should be, and I was rejected, that was just too terrifying. So, you know, this is film courage. Uh, courage is so important. And um, I lacked it as a writer. And that's part of why I teach, because um, I, I really want to do what I can to help inspire other people to not make that mistake. And so I think The Marvelous Miles is, is a really beautiful metaphor. Um, and to really hit your full potential, you have to be okay with being rejected. And what will happen is you will, there were people who read the pilot or the, heard the idea for Seinfeld or you know, Catastrophe or Breaking Bad or Orange is the New Black, um, Russian Doll, hated it. I, I was once, uh, some of your viewers might be a little young to fully appreciate this, but um, I was at a studio once, I'm not gonna name the studio for reasons that'll become clear, and I was uh, early for a meeting, so I was walking around, and I kind of wandered in an area I don't think I was allowed to be, and there was, uh, I, there was a box of coverage reports. Coverage reports is when scripts go into the studio, people write coverage. And I saw a coverage report for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The, the, when that script was right. submitted to that studio. And I looked at the coverage. 
this person hated that script. They said, this is the most annoying script I ever read. First of all, you have a teen character who thinks he's the smartest person <laughs> in the world, and he is, and he breaks the fourth wall and he talks to us in such a cloying, superior way. And it's like, yes, that was the, that's a, that was the magic of that movie. Oh, like, wow. you loved Ferris. But the point is, you take any amazing project, I'll guarantee, people told Quentin Tarantino when they read Pulp Fiction, if you move forward with this, you're going back to the video store. Like this, you, this is going to be a disaster of epic proportions. There are people who read American Beauty and said this is just stylized melodrama. There's nothing here. All it, when you are your authentic self, you're going to have detractors, and then you're going to have people that are going to fall in love. And that's all you need is one person to fall in love, and then it can change your life. All it needs is one person to say, I'm making this. This is important, and I'm doing it. So film courage, writer courage, is have the courage to don't feel protected by the rules and paradigms. Find what you're trying to say. Create authentic characters. Find the concept and go for it. And just write it completely not worrying about being rejected. And there will be people who will reject the script. But then people are going to see who you really are and what your voice truly is. And there are going to be people who love it. And that's how someone launches a career in the current marketplace. Corey, you said in the beginning, I believe, of the last question that you were listening or reading an interview with Donald Glover yeah. on The Hollywood Reporter. Um, I think it was The New Yorker. The New Yorker, okay. I think it was The New Yorker magazine, and it was an in-depth look at Donald Glover, and it was also talking about Atlanta, which, if I'm correct, has won more awards in his first two years than any TV show in his first two years. And Donald Glover was talking about um, how it used to be where they were trying to get the most people possible to watch a show and how it was following these paradigms and these tropes. Oh, people like families that argue and then come together and love each other. And people love a mystery with a red herring and then you find out who did it. So everyone's doing the same generic stories just with different dialogue or different locations or different characters. But now in a world where there's literally too much content, nobody can watch all of the shows. Nobody knows all the new shows. Um, in a world of too much content, concept and story are king. Um, yes, you need great characters, but there's so many scripts that have great characters. Um, and it's no longer the case that just because you have a certain star, people are gonna watch the show. There's just too many shows. So what he was, the point he was making is, um, oh, and there's a really great, really great funny quote um, I'll let, I'll let people read it, So, and, and there's a great quote in there, but basically what he's saying is um, it used to be getting the right actor, you know, getting a Ted Danson was the key. Now it's the story and the concept. That's what differentiates. And it's, it's telling a story in a unique way. It's telling the story in the way that's best for that story and for the experience you want people to have. So Atlanta is brilliantly structured. It's one of the shows that um, I have a plot casting class and we do case studies and I teach people how to deconstruct these shows to see how they're put together. And Atlanta is just brilliant. But if you look at any of the paradigms or the rules that are widely taught and then you look at the really successful shows like Atlanta or The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel or Fleabag or Russian Doll, 
And then if you also get scripts that have, have launched writers' careers in the past four years, and I've done this with my UCLA classes, just pile the scripts, have people grab whichever ones they want, and then the question is, what percentage of these scripts adhere to the rules and the paradigms that you've been taught? And the answer ranges from none to almost none. And then people get upset. Well, why am I forcing a square peg in a round hole when I don't have to? Exactly. So the, the article that Don, Don Glover was talking about the new paradigm, or, or the new reality of TV, and how the stories have to make an emotional connection. They can't be predictable. No, the reality, and we know this from the metadata, is that these paradigm-driven shows, that's what our parents watched. You know, we grew up and came of age with on-demand video platforms. Um, and we have, as a generation, watched more TV than is probably medically advisable. <laughs> we know what's a, a redo. We know what's a reheat. And more and more, our generation is not watching those shows. You know, Murder, She Wrote, which was a brilliant show in its day. That's what our parents watched. And so that was the, Donald Glover was making that argument in a much more um, articulate way than I just did. And so you can go look at it. And it's in The New Yorker two years ago or so. Do you have any advice for writers on getting the career they most want, the writing career? And then first off, how do they even know what that looks like? Yeah. So I want to re relay um, something that my favorite, one of the smartest agents ever, um, what she said when she came to my UCLA class. So step one, ask yourself, if I, if I was guaranteed success, absolutely guaranteed success, doing anything as a writer, what would I be doing? And I want you to be specific. So don't say, I want to write features. Do you want to write Academy Award-nominated winning features? Do you want to be uh, writing, directing small interpersonal movies? Do you want to be writing big, uh, popular culture successful movies that everyone's talking about? Um, don't say, I want to be doing 60-minute TV. What kind of 60 minute? Be very specific. And what I really urge people to do is, for this exercise, don't constrain yourself by what you think is possible. Like, if, if you're like, I'd love to be I'd love to create comedy shows, but I don't know if I'm funny enough. Well, the answer is if you were guaranteed success, what would you be doing and why? And I think that's a question writers should ask themselves at least twice a year. And, and anyone who's newer to this, to this journey, absolutely something to ask yourself. And you know, I think part of your question was, well, if someone's new and inexperienced enough, maybe they're not entirely sure. That's okay. Just write down today what your answer would be. Your answer can change over time as you get more experience and more education, but know what it is that you most, know what you would do if you were guaranteed success. And then the agent said, now, hear me when I tell you, nobody gets the career they want. You get the career you deserve. So the key is figure out the career you most want, then figure out how to deserve that career. And I'll get there in a second, but I just want to do a little quick personal thing, which is, you know, when we walk, we, where we look is where we move. That's our intent. So when I was a young writer at UCLA, I was very insecure, didn't know if I had what it took, 
don't come from wealthy parents. I was on student aid. And I really have this idea of I need to know if this is going to work out for me, because if it isn't, I'm going to law school. And so I, I made a promise to myself that within one year, I was going to sell a script. And 13 months later, I sold a pitch to Ridley Scott, and I was willing to say that counts. And then Ridley said he was making the movie, it was front page of Variety, and I was getting all of these offers to write projects, high profile projects for money, at least for me, I didn't know people made that kind of money. I don't come from money. But what I realized is these weren't the kind of things I wanted to be writing. They were the kind of movies I'd want to see, but I don't want to write these. It's not, it's not creatively fulfilling. I want to be doing these. And I was stupid or naive or both enough to call my agent and say, hey, I'm getting all these offers, but I really want these kind of offers. I want to be doing this. And my agent took a really long pause, I think, just to figure out how the nicest way to say this. But in her own very, very sweet way, what she said is, if you wanted that career, why didn't you write the spec scripts that get you that career? Because you wrote the spec scripts that get you this career. And she said, this is your career, so you're going to follow this career for five years. And you're going to nail it, knock it out of the park. And after five years, if you want to start talking about how you might change the industry perception of you and how you might want to bend your career over there, we can do that. But if I'm representing you for the next five years, this is your career because that's the career you launched. So there was a really important question. If that's the career I want, why did I write a script that launches this career? And the answer was, I never asked myself what kind of career I wanted. My intent was to launch a career, and I achieved that. My intent wasn't to launch the career I most want. And I work with writers routinely who have careers who come to me and they're like, I want to change my career. I want to change what I'm known for. I want to change the trajectory of my career. And they have very similar stories. So it's it takes a lot of effort, a lot of training, a lot of hard work to launch a career. If you're going to do that, you might as well do it in service of a career you most want. Or at least that ought to be your plan A. You know, at some point, someone can say, I've done all this training, I've done all this dedication, this is the career I want, it's just not happening for me. Maybe there is a career I'm more suited for. Maybe there's a different kind of writing. Maybe it's not what I most love doing, but maybe I can make a living doing that. That's plan B. And there's certain, it's certainly our writers will do that. At some point, they're like, this isn't working. Let me go to plan B. But for so many people like myself, I just started with plan B. And, and for a lot of writers, maybe they would have gotten what they most wanted if they went there. So that's why it's so important, I believe, to start with what is the career you most want? And why? Because I think you owe it to yourself to do what's required to have, to give yourself a shot at that. Okay, now the question becomes, you know the career you most want. How do you deserve that career? Then of course it is writing the right scripts. But what people have to realize is it's not a good script. It's not a great script. It's an exceptional script. So let me tell you a true story. Bruce Springsteen, one of the greatest rock and roll gods of all time. He talks a lot about his life in the Netflix um, special, but there's a documentary also if you, you can watch on uh, the making of Born to Run. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. It's really, if you're, if, you, if, if you're like me and you're a nerd of the creative process, it's, it's, it's amazing. 
So Bruce Springsteen, one of the most talented musicians to ever walk the earth, dedicated, you know, while his friends were going to college and start, you know, jobs and starting families, he was just playing music for free or you know, for no money. He was just all in on having, he wanted to be a rock star and he was all in and he was mega talented and he got a record deal, which almost nobody got. And they promoted it and they marketed it and they made radio stations play his music. This is the 1970s. There's no internet. There's no Spotify. There's no iTunes. If radio stations don't play your music, no one knows who you are. They don't want to play an unknown person. But Columbia Records could say, do you want the new Fleetwood Mac album? Do you want that right, you're going to play Bruce Springsteen this number of times and we're going to have people listening to make sure. So all of that and the record came out and it bombed. Now, I always have someone come up to me who's mad. They're like, it was brilliant. You know, I'm not saying it wasn't artistically brilliant. I'm saying it commercially bombed. Bruce says that. And he got something very few people get in the record business, a second chance. And he poured heart and soul, and he knew the second album, it was this or, or he was giving up his dream. And the second album came out, and it bombed. And God smiled on him because he got a third chance. And that third album was Born to Run. His first two albums sold 42,000 copies. Born to Run, 10 million copies. Born to Run is considered one of the five greatest albums of all time. He became and remains a rock god. In the 1970s, if you want to be famous, there's two ways to do it. Be on the cover of People magazine or Newsweek magazine. He was on the cover of both in the same week. Oh, wow. So here's the question. And this is the question that anyone who, once you know the career you most want, how you deserve it, here's my question for you. What was different about Bruce Springsteen's third album than the first two albums? The most popular guess I get is luck. Gotta be in the right place at the right time, catch lightning in a bottle. Luck is an excuse. Born to Run was a transcendent album. It would have been uber successful if it was released five years earlier, five years later if it was released today. It is transcendent. It's not luck. Yes, you can write an amazing script, and if you're not in the right place at the right time, it may not sell or get made. That is true. But if you write a transcendent script, you will launch a career. People want to work with you. They'll want to hear your pitches. They'll want to staff you. So it's not luck. The other answer I get is that he found his voice. He found his authentic voice. No, you go to the first two albums, and it is his authentic voice. It, it is Bruce. You hear that talent and that voice and that melancholy and that aching and that strength, it, it, he had his voice honed in those first two albums. So he, he didn't find his voice, he didn't get lucky, so what is the difference? And the answer is Neil Landau, and Bruce Springsteen talks about it in this documentary. Neil Landau was a reporter for the Rolling Stone who was a big fan of those first two albums and uh, came on board as a producer and he produced Bruce Springsteen's third album. And they talk about it in this documentary, both Neil and Bruce. What Neil Landau did was he changed Bruce Springsteen's process, evolved Bruce Springsteen's process just that much. And changing his process, because process is how we create product, changing the process that much can be the difference between a failure and being a rock god, or a failure and being an A-list writer. I see this with writers, they're like this close. And so it's changing your process, it's evolving your process. And almost every A-list writer I know will say, there was someone in my life, a manager, a showrunner, a producer, 
who helped me see a different creative way of doing this, a, a, an evolved way of doing it, changing your process. So that is so key for someone who's like, this is the career I want. The way I deserve it is to write just exceptional scripts. Okay, how do I write exceptional scripts? Well, talent, you know, make sure that you have uh, properly trained yourself to create characters and dialogue that are compelling, compelling conflict. I did all this in a Film Courage video, The Essential Tools. So you can go back and watch that video. Um, then often the missing piece, and this is what I do in my, I have a three workshop series, and the first two workshops are really teaching those skill sets. And the third workshop is all about process. And it's all about evolving your process. Now, there's a lot of things I do in that workshop. Um, I'll, I'll share one with your audience. I'll share one specific tool. And just to be clear, this is, this is just one of like 15 tools that are really important, but here's one. And one of the tools that I teach is the uh, Clarity Index. And so what it, it's a very simple tool. When you are trying to design and execute an exceptional script, so it's not following the rules, it's not paradigm driven, it's not predictable, it's not character serving preordained plot points, but you're trying to write a script like Russian Doll or um, Breaking Bad Pile or Marvelous Mrs. Meisel or Fleabag or we could go on and on and on, then you're creating something original. And I guarantee you there's gonna be at least one or more times in that process that's gonna get really hard and it's gonna be really difficult to figure something out. How do I motivate the character to do this? Or how do I solve this dilemma that the character's in? Or there's, there's, there's a wide range of structural design issues that can be really challenging. Every writer goes through that. So when you're trying to solve a really challenging creative problem, I ask people to think about a spectrum between one and 10. And one is, I have no idea in the world how to do this. I, have, I don't know the answer. I don't even know where to start looking. I am completely lost. And a 10 is when you can concisely and precisely answer it. When people hear that answer, they're like, yes. Um, you know, if you go back and look at the uh, creative integration video for Film Courage, like their, their intuitive instinct just goes, yes, and their conceptual analytical brain goes, yes. So a 10 is, that is the answer, and you can say it, the more we have to talk, the less we know. You can say it concisely and precisely, and in a room, everyone's just going to look at you and go, yes. So that's a 10. And a 1 is, <laughs> no idea, I don't even know where to look. So a 5 is like, I, I have a sense the idea is over here. I think it's sort of shaped this way, but I don't know what it is. You know, an eight is I know the answer, but I can't precisely tell it to you. If you let me talk, as I talk, it's in there somewhere. Maybe you can help me find it, because I know it's here, but I can't, I don't know exactly where it is, exactly what it is. That's like an eight, you know? A three would be, I don't know the answer, but I have a pretty good sense I should look in this direction. Okay, so this is the spectrum. So the first thing that I want to train people to do is know where you are. Know where you are. And understand that if you're trying to write a script that can change your life, that can launch your career, or take, I work a lot, right now, I used to work with writers who were trying to launch their careers. I don't do that anymore. I now work, I do that in my workshops. But one-on-one, -on -one, I primarily work with people who've been staffed on shows who are trying to get to the next level. So I tell them, 
inherently you're going to be at a one or a two in the beginning. Here's one of the most important things. What is your relationship with being at a low number? A lot of writers get really stressed. They get anxious. It's very uncomfortable. You're working on a script, you're like, if I can't solve this problem, the script doesn't work. And I have no idea how to solve this problem. I've been thinking about it for three days, and I, the, the, the example I give that I can relate to is, whenever I park in a large parking garage, I can never find my car. So if I'm walking through a large parking garage, I know my car is there, but I can't find it, it gets frustrating. But imagine if I don't even know if I drove the car there. Now imagine if I don't even know if I have a car. Because when you're at a low number on this clarity spectrum, you don't know the answer. You don't know if there is an answer. And if there is an answer, you don't know if you're gonna find it. You may not be able to find it. There's no guarantee. And that freaks people out. And they get very stressed and uncomfortable. And what we know about human beings is there's an automatic part of our brain that wants to, when we get stressed and freaked out, wants to soothe and comfort ourselves. And we have different ways of doing it. Here's a whole bunch of really destructive ways writers soothe themselves when they're really freaked out about a really tough problem. They have no idea if they can figure it out or not. Unfortunately, I can relate to almost all of these strategies. So one strategy is to convince yourself it's not a problem. I'm overthinking this. I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. This is, no one else is even gonna see this problem. And then that calms you down, soothes you down, lets you keep writing. And then down the road, when you give the script to someone that you trust, you're gonna find out that this was a glaring problem for them and the whole script doesn't work. So you're just kicking the can down the road. Uh, one of my favorite strategies was to then, another possible strategy is to say, nah, it's a really big problem. It's gotta be solved. And then I come up with a kind of decent answer that's like a five on the clarity spectrum and I convince myself it's a 10. I have an answer that kind of works, but it's not a really great answer. And I'm like, perfect. Once again, you're gonna get your comeuppance when people read your script, people you trust, because you didn't solve the problem. Another mistake that people will make is they'll say, there just is no solution to this problem. That's why no one's done a TV show. I hear people say this all the time. Like, if Breaking Bad didn't exist, you could, I could see someone saying, that's why no one's done a TV show about a guy who cooks crystal meth, because there's no way to care about that guy. No one wants to spend time with a guy who cooks crystal meth. Crystal meth is a scourge of the universe. Or, you know, no, I have this great idea of doing a spy story where the protagonists are Russian spies. They're Russian spies. They come to America. They were KGB agents. They speak perfect English. They have kids. They pretend to be married, and they undermine the American way. And everyone's like, ooh, that's an interesting concept. And then it's like, yeah, but no one cares about these people. What are the stakes? They're gonna get caught. Oh no, they're gonna get caught killing Americans, undermining the American way. They're the enemy. Well, of course, that guy figured out how to do that script and the Americans changed his life. Not only did he sell that script, he was a showrunner in year two and that, that has won so many Emmys and best drama. And my point is, any script that's gonna change your life has something about it that's really hard to figure out. And so what a lot of writers will do is they'll say, yeah, I've been at it for three or four days or a week. There's no solution. That's why no one's done a show like this. Or maybe there's a solution that someone smarter than me can figure out. And they just put that script away. There are so many writers 
who had an instinct for something unique and special and amazing, had something really difficult to figure out, struggled with it, and then just put that in a drawer. That script would have changed their life, but it went into a drawer. The reality is the writers who we all admire, the writers who create amazing shows, David Chase really wanted to do a show about what it's like to feel like your mom is just crushing your life out of you. It's like she's killing you, but you can't escape her because you're a Roman Catholic, it's your mom. And he couldn't figure out how to do that with stakes. Took him two years, he talks about this, two years to figure it out. He finally figured it out, a little project called The Sopranos. So the point being, how many people have a Sopranos or a Breaking Bad or a flea bag that's just in their drawer? And it took David, the difference between David Chase and most writers, or Jenji Cohen, and I think she said it took her like 11 months to figure out how to do and solve some of the problems in Orange is a New Black. The difference between Jenji Cohen and David Chase isn't that they don't start at a low number. It isn't that they struggle. It isn't that they're lost. It isn't they go down a lot of uh, dead alleys or you know blind alleys that don't go anywhere. That's, that, that's not what's different for them. What's different is they don't give up. And they have a process to get to a 10, but they don't give up. So many writers give up. They, they, they rationalize away the problem. They rationalize that a okay solution is a brilliant solution. Or they just say, well, that's why no one did, you know, I have this great concept, but that's why no one's done it, because it can't work. Or the classic, I need a vacation from this. I'll put it in a drawer, work on something else, and I'll go back to this. And then they acquire drawer full. So what's really important is to train yourself to expect to be at a low number and to relax into the unknown. To be okay. And then to have a process to start moving up. Instead of trying to find the solution, start brainstorming possible ways of approaching the solution. Always be looking for options. Always be brainstorming possibilities. That's the way, because when you're trying to find the right solution, you're so constricted, and that judgmental part is coming in and throwing things away. Like, nah, that's not perfect. But if you're brainstorming options, if you're just brainstorming options for ways to find options, then you can, relax that critical judgmental mind and you can start wandering. And then you start moving up and you start to have a sense and an idea and you start to move up and most writers will stop at a nine. A lot of writers don't know what a 10 feels like. And so they're always stopping at a nine. So one of the things that I do in the workshops is I will bring in a creative problem that a writer I worked with had and how this was their first idea and how to solve it and it clearly isn't very good and then how they got all the way here to a really good solution but it was like a nine and then I give them the 10 and you can feel the difference. I can't do this here because I have permission to do it in the workshops but people can go through Film Courage videos. There are a lot of great writers talking and sharing their stories and what I would be looking for is, so there are writers who are gonna talk about how they got into business, they're gonna talk about this project, they're gonna talk about how this came together, and all of that's um, really interesting, it can be educational and inspiring, but what I would really pay attention to is a writer, and I know that this exists in, in a lot of the interviews, is look for a writer who's talking about a really difficult um, creative process or creative problem they're trying to solve, and then they give what the actual solution was, and you'll feel it. You'll feel like in so few words, they just nailed it. So you need to know what a 10 feels like to 
to hold yourself to 10. So to sort of wrap this all together, I'll share a true story. Uh, my wife has a cousin whose dream was to be a baseball player. And he was the best high school baseball player in the eastern half of the United States. And long story short, when all his friends went to college, he went to the Yankees. He was 18 and he went to the Yankees, but in the minor league system, the, the, the like AAA. And he was an Adonis, a man amongst boys. He broke all the batting home run records, defensive player of the year. And this guy was going to be one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And at a pretty young age, the, at a pretty young age, the Yankees brought him up to the majors. And he was playing with his heroes. And he was just striking out, striking out, and couldn't hit the ball. So that's okay. They gave him a batting coach, a psychology coach, couldn't hit the ball. So they put him back down the minor, like home run, home run, home run, brought him back up to the major, strikeout, strikeout. That's okay. And they just kept doing this for like four years, and they eventually cut him. Another team, the Cleveland Indians, picked him up. Same thing, same cycle. They cut him. Another team. Went through three teams. Same thing. In the minor leagues, broke records. In the major league, he could not hit the ball. And then that was over. He was 27 years old, and it was over. Now, he saved his money. He went to architect school. Met a wonderful woman. They're married, have kids. He's very happy. But here's an interesting, I learned this whole thing because I was with him at a wedding and we were walking from point A to point B, which meant walking over some grass. He wouldn't do it. He walked a mile out of his way to not go on grass. And his wife's like, yeah, he won't walk on grass. We, we don't have grass in our house. He will never walk on grass his entire life. And I'm like, okay, I have to hear this story. Essential context, what is this all about? Sense memory, it reminds him Walking on grass reminds him of baseball. And it reminds him of his dream that he can't ever have. So he just never walks on grass. So I asked him, what's the difference between hitting the best minor league pitch and an average major league pitch? And he looked at me and he said, that. That's the difference. And writers don't understand that that doesn't seem like a lot, but when that's what stands between you and your dream, that's a lot. And I have writers that are sent to me by agents and managers who are this close. And on the clarity spectrum, they can get to a nine, and they think it's a 10. I mean, no one's gonna push that extra mile. They don't, you know, if you think you've ran 26.2 miles, you're like, I've done the marathon, and you can stop. But what if you've only gone 25 miles? That's what a really good manager will do for you, is they will tell you this script is really good. It's not yet exceptional. You've got to make it that much better. Because nobody does that on their own because they don't realize it could be that much better. You know, when I was starting out, the greatest gift my manager gave me is he held me to a standard I didn't think I could hit. And he said, I know you can hit that standard. I don't know if he really thought that or not, but I needed to hear that. And so the clarity spectrum is not making the mistakes at the smaller number. Yeah, and as you go through life and you, you watch Film Courage videos or you know, writer podcasts or you go to events where you hear writers talk, you will hear writers talk about creative problems. Or if they talk about a creative problem but they didn't talk about the solution, try to social media them or go up to them after the event and just say, hey, I'm a writer and you were talking about in the script, you were struggling with this. I'm really curious, like, how did you, what was your process? How did you get to an answer? What was that answer? In my, I do it all. I do this all the time with writers. Um, they're usually excited to share this. You know, usually when people come up to them, it's like, "How do I get an agent? Will you read my script?" But if you approach a writer and you're like, "I just want to learn what your process was and what was the solution," they'll share it with you. And if you do that 
pay attention to how few, of wor how few words they use to give the answer and how when you hear that answer, how it makes you feel. Like there's a tuning fork inside you where you're like, yeah, 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 no, that's it, that's brilliant. And that's what a 10 feels like. And when you know what a 10 feels like, then you, you'll know when you're not quite there. You had talked about in the last Film Courage interview that you read Rewrites, the memoir by Neil Simon. Yeah. And um, I just briefly skimmed the book on Amazon and he kind of talked about the same thing he, in terms of being unhappy, working in LA on a television show. And he was like, if I don't, uh, I think his quote was, if I don't um, start writing a Broadway play soon, I would inevitably become a permanent part of the West Coast topography. <laughs> this very thought of that jump-started me to my desk. So, but, but do you think, it, he was 30, I think, when he was talking about that. Do you think most writers know, they, they just kind of think about that same thing that you, like, I've got to get signed, I've got to get, yeah. you know, and, and how do they even know that this is the wrong genre or type of, of writing job for them. Right. They, they so, might not. So a mistake that I made, and I think I made a lot of stupid mistakes. This mistake, I don't beat myself up too much because I think this is a pretty understandable mistake and I see writers make this, which is just because you love a certain TV show or a certain movie or a certain genre, excuse me, just because you love a certain TV show or a movie or a certain genre doesn't mean you love writing it. It might. I mean, you know, Fleabag is your, your all-time favorite TV show, and you could write something like that. You might love it. You might not. So what I'd suggest is, especially if you're new, instead of picking this is the kind of writer I'm going to be, play with it and write 10 or 15 pages of this kind of a thing and 10 or 15 pages of this kind of thing. Ten and, and don't worry if it's great. Don't worry about the engine and the concept and all that. Just see. What is my experience in writing these pages? Just experiment. It's like being a young kid in an attic and you try on different clothes and you pretend to be different people. What, what person, what type of writing really excited you? I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I have routinely see when I work with a writer, you know, we always start with an entry, uh, in, um, an initial uh, kind of interview conversation. And the, and the writer will always say, you know, this is the kind of stuff I write. Uh, this is what I think's in my wheelhouse. Uh, this is the stuff that I, I would suck at. And I always make them try to do what they think they'd suck at. Like, again, not an entire script. You know, maybe just a couple days in assignment. It's not that uncommon that someone, when they do this, it's like, holy shit, it's so good. And I loved it. And I've seen writers who've had this career, and they play around with what they know they wouldn't be good at, and they go on to have huge careers. I'm not saying that's always the case. So experiment, sort of. You know, just like maybe when someone's a young person, they're not really sure who they want to be in a long-term relationship. Maybe you date around and you, you meet different people and you date different people. Maybe date people you wouldn't think of dating just to see what the experience is like. The same, date different kinds of writing. But yeah, it's really, it's, it, is it is common that writers will have a career and then discover that's not what I want to be doing. That's very common. I mean, just talk to agents or managers. They have a lot of good friends or agents. They, they hear this all the time. Is early success in the entertainment industry a blessing or a curse? <laughs> That's such a fascinating question. I think it could be both. I mean, I think it could be a blessing for someone, it could be a curse for someone, it could be both. Um, and I see that. Um, 
I'll talk about myself. I had very early success. I was had been in film school a year when I sold uh, pitched to Ridley Scott. Front page of Variety, Ridley's making the movie. He ultimately didn't, but it was a front page of Variety. Every studio was fighting for me. In some ways, I feel so blessed and lucky because um, I deal with writers who have so much talent and passion, and they've been at it for three years, five years, seven years, ten years, and they foregoed, they foregone a career and, and another career. You know, they they are just working on writing. They have a day job to pay the bills. Um, they're not living the lifestyle they want because everything is about their writing, and they have this just. Is it going to happen for me? And and you know, I want to be married. I want to have kids. And like, if I'm going to pivot, I should do it soon. I don't want to keep doing this if it's not going to work out for me. I don't want to pivot if it's about to work out for me. What do I do? And it's such a for someone to ask me that they've got to be in a lot of pain to ask because no one else can answer it. I thank God I never had to go through that. Um, it all happened so quickly for me. So like that was a huge blessing. I have to deal with that. And I see so many writers make it so much harder on themselves than they have to because they're so impatient. You know, they're like, I've, I've written this number of scripts and I've been at it this amount of time and it's got, this next one has to happen. They, they just put all the weight of the world on their next project. And that's a big reason why they don't actually get to attend. And we were talking about the clarity spectrum in that previous video, that process video. Because they just, they, they've got to get this thing out there and it's got to sell. Because if it doesn't, then they're going to go back to law school or graduate school or whatever. So certainly a blessing to not have to go through that. Um, it's also a blessing because I, I learned a lot as in my first couple of assignments. And I had producers and directors teach me so much. And I was getting paid. To, I was getting paid a good amount of money to learn and get better. So um, especially if, you know, for someone who doesn't have a lot of money, that's a nice way of learning because you're, you're getting access to Ridley Scott. You're getting access to Wolfgang Peterson. You're getting access for me, like working title. I was getting access. That's the thing that is sort of um, heartbreaking is that when my career was started and it was going really big, I was going to all these parties and I was meeting the Coen brothers. I was meeting Quentin Tarantino and I was talking to them about craft and process and learning from them. And then my day job is I was working for Working Title, I think are the smartest producers I ever met, and um, Ridley Scott and his team. Like I had access to everything that an aspiring writer needs, but for the most part, it's only the people who have success that have access to that. And for the mo now I needed access to that because I didn't know what I didn't know. But most writers who have access to all that, they, they're already amazing writers. So it's like the people that need access to these people can't get access to these people. So gave me access to people who are so successful and smarter than me, um, who are willing to help me. Uh, I got paid to learn. And I didn't have to go through that incredibly emotional struggle of how long do I do this. So I'm forever grateful for all of that. And so that was just straight up blessings. You know, and for some people, it's just a straight up blessing, but there can be some curses to it. Um, you know, for me, um, it just came so easy. And right out of the gate, I was working with these amazing people and getting paid all this money. I was so young and so naive and so stupid. I just thought that's normal. That's just how it's going to be. You know, I mean, studios were flying me first class and it was just this amazing life. And then when my career took a dip, it was just crushing for me 
you know, because I, I had an entitlement. I didn't, I hadn't been forged in the fire of, of what this is like. People who struggle for a while, they will, they will develop a stronger process. One of the reasons that I never had the success that I wanted, uh, and part of the reason I walked away from writing after 10 years is I had such a painful relationship with it. And I talked about this like fear of rejection and I was never really writing to my best ability and I was pulling my punches. And for the most part, I hated writing. And I don't know if it would have been different if I didn't have success early on, but what the writers I work with, I always tell them your blessing right now that you're not, you don't have a career is you get to work on your relationship with writing. You get to experiment like we've been talking about in these other videos. You get to evolve your process. I couldn't do that really because, you know, with Ridley Scott, I had six weeks to write a script. That's not a time to be experimenting with your process. That's not a time to be saying, oh, I have this strength, but I have this weakness as a writer. Let me just put this on hold and find a class or a workshop that can help me turn this weakness into a strength. No, it's like, you go to war with the army you have. Like, I have to write the script to the best of my ability. And then I just got on this, like, I was like an addict. I just wanted another deal, more money, another deal. I never was willing to stop and develop myself. And I know so many managers and agents, but particularly managers, it drives them crazy because they'll a writer is good enough to have a career, but they're not quite good enough to have the career they want. And they won't get off the gravy train. There's this fear of... I see it in the writers I work with, I saw it in myself, which is, if I don't take this deal, I'll never get another deal. You know, because someday the industry is gonna wake up and realize they made a mistake with me. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm no good. And so every deal was the last deal. So I'll like, let me do this and bank the money and then I'll go train myself. But no, then there's a new deal, a new deal. My agent at some point said, you're a crack addict like that. I mean, you're, you're addicted to these deals. You're never gonna stop doing this. And it was true. Um, you know, and then my father passed away and it just changed everything and, and then I, I walked away. But um, so I tell people, you know, who it's not happening for them right away, which is nor that's the I was incredibly just fortunate. Um, I had some really good mentoring, some really good training by people and I was at the right place at the right time. So it, it was just very fortunate. But people who, the normal experience, that's not the case. I just worked with a writer. I'm going to see him actually tomorrow night. Um, he's been at it for six years and he just sold three feature scripts. But in those years, what his blessing was that he really got to change his relationship to writing. He got to realize that he has inherent strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots. Blind spots are weaknesses we don't know we have. And he was willing and, and had the mindset to find people to help show him his blind spots and how to attack weaknesses and turn them into strengths. That's, that's entirely what I do philosophically in my workshops. And so people, not necessarily in my workshops, wherever you do it, you have the opportunity to not only become a stronger writer, but change your relationship with writing, where you're not so afraid of rejection, and you're not so afraid of other, you, you have a core, and, you, you, and no one can take that from you. No one can take your voice from you. No one can take your integrity from you. And you really have a, you can really forge that in the fire of not succeeding. And then when you do get a career, you could be more likely to make smarter decisions, stand up for yourself, say no to projects. Because that's the thing, like I'd had no financial safety net and I had all these loans to pay off and I just felt like they're offering me this amount of money 
I never can make that amount of money doing anything else. I have to say yes. But people who have gone four or five years without success, they know how to survive. You know, they know how to financially take care of themselves. So if they are in a situation where someone's offering them a deal to do a project and they know in their heart of hearts it's not a good move for them, it's not moving them to where they want to get to, they might have more strength in saying no. You know, because the idea of like, okay, so let's just say I say no a couple times and I, I stop getting offers and I got to go back and write a spec. They're like, well, I've done that. I survived that. So, I mean, I, if I had to choose, I, I would have chosen launching a career early on. I think there's a lot of blessings in that. But I think there could also be a lot of blessings in having to struggle a while, find your voice, find your integrity, find why you're doing this change your process, evolve your process, and get stronger as a writer. So then when it does happen for you, you can really have the career you most want. In our 2017 interview, Corey, we touched somewhat on, on Battlefield Earth. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can talk about it again. And that is, I believe you're one of the co-writers mm -hmm. on the movie. Can you explain what happened and also help explain to other screenwriters maybe what could possibly happen to them? Sure. Thanks for bringing that up. No. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm here to open old wounds, yeah. <laughs> so let me, I'll walk you through sort of what happened and how it happened. But then, I, with your permission, I want to back up and sort of talk about a more important aspect to it. So what happened is um, I, I felt like I was so unlucky out of the gate. Well, no, I felt incredibly fortunate. I sold this pitch. Really, Scott was going to make it. He almost made it. But then there was just all this crazy stuff with uh, German investment, studio politics, just all this stuff that had nothing to do with me or the script. It didn't get made. Two, pro two projects later, I have a director of a greenlit movie, studio greenlit movie, director in Africa, scouting locations. And then the head of the studio lost his job. The new person came in and shut down all of the projects that the previous person had greenlit. So that now it was dead. And I could go on, I had five projects in the first five years that were greenlit, but didn't get made. And so I just thought, God hates me, and I'm the unluckiest person in the world. And then I met more and more writers who had the exact same stories, and I realized, oh, it's not that God hates me, God hates writers. <laughs> and it's just, this is just the nature of the beast. Now, I, um, so I had a, um, so I'm sorry. So what happened is the last time I had, I had written a script that um, almost got made, but the star backed out. And it's just so clear you need a star to get it over the finish line. So I got a call from my agent saying that um, they wanted to meet you at MGM. Uh, John Travolta was a huge star at the time uh, and um, for Battlefield Earth. So I want you to go take the meeting. Do not say yes. To, do not take the project. But meet John Travolta and his producing partner. These are good relationships. And you're going to meet the head of the studio, head of MGM. So I went in and um, took the meeting. And um, they told me what I wanted to hear. And I wanted to hear it. And they told me... This has nothing to do with Scientology. Um, you know, we had, a we had a writer from Scientology and the script is completely unusable. Um, we're not following the book literally. In fact, John's gonna play the main character and the, the main character in the book is like a young 
like 17 year old or 18 year old and you know John's a middle-aged man at this point and we just want a big Star Wars movie and um, it's gonna be really fun and, and just told me everything I want to hear and John Travolta was like he's really good at making me feel really special and this is gonna be a great movie and all of this and I was very respectful but I, I said no um, but I was really tempted because I'm like this will get made and this could be a big fun Star Wars movie maybe and it has Travolta. He's very motivated to do this. But I said, no, it was really hard. Because at the point, I was feeling like if I don't get something made, no one's going to hire me again. Because you can write some scripts that get close to being made and they don't get made. But at some point, if you've written five, six, seven scripts that haven't actually got made, then at some point, people are going to blame you. And I really felt like I was, if I wasn't there, I was getting there. So then it leaves MGM and it goes to Fox 2000. They pick it up, and Laura Ziskin's running Fox 2000, and she came, she was one of the first industry people I ever met because I was in film school, and she came to speak to us, and I was mesmerized. She's so intelligent, and she's just so amazing, and just feels like she has so much ethics, and has, was involved in some of my favorite movies. So they, once again, made a run at me, and I had dinner, and I said yes. And Fox 2000, you know, they were very clear, like this has got nothing to do with Scientology and it's going to be this kind of a movie and all. I felt very secure in saying yes. Now I want to be clear. My wife said don't say yes. My agent said don't say yes. My friend said don't say yes. My golden retriever, Toby, said don't say yes in his own golden retriever way. So, so everyone else was saying don't do it, but I did it. And I'm going to come back to why I said yes, the real reason I said yes. I'm going to come back to that, but I said yes. And I got paid a lot of money, and I wrote the script. And two or three days before I turned the script in, um, Fox 2000 was out. There was a change with Laura. Anyway, um, Fox 2000 was out. And the project got picked up by Franchise Films, which isn't a real film company. They're a financing company. We've since gotten in a lot of trouble. But um, so when I turned the script in, there was no studio. There were no executives. It was just... John and his producing partner. And um, as far as I can tell, spiritual advisors came in to fill that void because there's no real record of what the development was at that point because it was no longer a studio movie. And so there were changes to the script that I was not involved in. And then the movie got made. And, um, and it had a, a minuscule budget for the special effects. And it was terrible. And I don't mean to be offensive that anyone's a Scientologist, but in the industry, that was not seen as a positive. In fact, I went on like a round of meetings for a year after that movie where people just brought me in to see how did this happen and are you a Scientologist? Everyone wanted to know if I was a Scientologist, which I am not. Um, and so, yeah, so basically, the, once you turn a script in, you don't own that script. You have no control over the changes. If it's a studio film, there's going to be a record of the developmental changes. There was no record. Nobody, well, some people know. I have no idea who, I've heard rumors, but I have no idea who rewrote it and why. But they rewrote it back to the book. And then John, for some reason, decided instead of playing the 17-year-old character, he was going to play the space alien. He was going to play like this giant space alien, which I don't think was probably the best choice. So anyway, the movie was just a complete unmitigated disaster. And I remember I was in Vegas when it came out. I was so depressed 
because I was like, that's it, my writing career is over. I was actually secretly a little relieved, but I was mostly depressed. I remember talking to my agent who like talked me off the ledge and he's like, people in this industry know what happened and they are not gonna hold this against you. And your career is not over. It's gonna be a little more challenging, but your career is not over. If this ever happens again, your career is over, that you can survive this one. And again, uh, just, I think I was just so blessed and fortunate. I continued to work as a writer at my full quote with heads of studios, major directors for four more years. Like it should have ended my career. I was fortunate that I had a track record of writing scripts that had attracted major elements that almost got made, didn't get made. So I had that. So people were willing to say, okay, this was an unmitigated disaster. We're not gonna hold this one against you. And, and I got to keep working. I think if I was a newer writer without that track record, it would have been over for me. But I, I wanna sort of back up because all of that kind of does, it kind of, it kind of divorces me of a lot of the responsibility. It's sort of like, okay, I knew I shouldn't say yes, but I said yes. And then right before I turned the script in, the studio backed out and it was franchise films, and, and all of that's true. But I wanna back up. After the Ridley Scott deal happened, an agent, Barbara Dreyfus was an agent at the time, just, she wasn't my agent, but she was such a good person that she took me out to lunch, even though I wasn't her client. And she said, Corey, the script that you wrote to get your career and the script you wrote for Metropolis that Ridley's gonna make now, is not the most important script of your career. The most important script of your career is the next script that you write. Because now you're on the radar. Now people know who you are. This next script will seal your fate. This next script will put you on a trajectory. What career do you most want? And that's what the script needs to be. People are gonna offer you a lot of money to write scripts that you don't wanna write. You have to say no. You will be scared that the offers will, will slow down and they may not come. You have to take that risk. The offers won't slow down. Worst case, everyone offers a script, everyone offers you a project to write and you don't wanna write it. You say no to everything. And worst case, they stop offering you things. Write a spec. You have to write the script that you most wanna write that is authentic. You have to write the script that you're gonna, that is gonna be a 10 on a scale of one to 10. It's gotta be exceptional. Because this next script is going to seal your fate. Down the road, if you want to take a project just for because you're getting paid a obscene amount of money, you can do that down the road, not right now. And it was one of those times when, when she said that, I just got this chill up my spine. I'm like, this is true. I was offered a project I didn't want to write. I said no. I was offered another project. I said no. The studio came back and offered me more money. I said no. They came back and offered me a lot more money. I thought about it. I said, do I want to write the script? I absolutely do not want to write the script. I said no. It was really hard. Then they said, we want to meet with you at least. So I went to meet to get the relationship. And in the room, they offered me more money and they talked it all up and they played to my ego and I said yes. So there I was, I, I failed this test really early on. And like from that moment on, I was just, I was always reacting. I didn't have a center. I was just reacting. I was scared. I just wanted more, I just wanted, I didn't want the deals to end. And I just kept taking deals that in my soul I knew I shouldn't be taking, but I did. 
And if you do that over time, it's going to lead to Battlefield Earth. If you just keep reacting and you don't find your integrity in your center and you just give your power to the industry and do whatever it takes to keep getting work, it's going to end terribly. I feel like I completely deserved Battlefield Earth. It was the, I was just making reactive fear-based decisions and that's what it leads you to. And I was able to talk myself into taking that project. Yes, I didn't know Fox 2000 would drop out. I had no idea about franchise films. There was a lot I couldn't foresee, but I knew in my heart that I should say no. And I said yes. So I own that and I deserve that. I can now look back at it and say it was, it was literally one of the greatest things that ever happened in my life because I was so afraid of rejection. I was so afraid of what other people thought. This movie came out and like, you could imagine looking through the LA Times or the New York Times at the reviews. I mean, they were brutal. I mean, this, this movie is a punchline to jokes today. I mean, this is considered one of the worst movies of all time. And I am one of the credited writers. And even though most people don't understand how the industry works and what re that really means, I am one of the credited writers on one of the worst movies of all time. I, you, for me, like there was no greater sense of rejection or shame. It was, it was beyond what I was most afraid of. Didn't kill me. I came out of it stronger. I came out of it humbled. I came out of it for the first time starting to hear that voice inside me. I started to pay attention to who I was. I started to realize, and then when my father died, I realized life doesn't last forever. And I realized that I'd been living my life based, making all these fear-based decisions and not saying who am I and what matters to me and why am I on this planet and those questions. And that led me ultimately after four, I worked for four years after breaking, or, um, I wish it was Breaking Bad, Battlefield Earth. Um, I worked for four years after that, and then I walked away. And just to be clear, I don't want to make it look like I was at the height of my career and I walked away. And the offers were getting harder and harder. It, they were slowing up. It was getting harder and harder to book a job. I felt like I could squeeze another one out, but I walked away. Because I didn't want to write. I didn't want to do this anymore. And the one thing that I've loved in life is teaching. And I was teaching at UCLA, like, once a year for, for the fun of it when I was writing. And I, I remember talking to my wife and I'm like, if I could just teach, like, I feel like that's my purpose. And she's like, then that's what you're gonna do. And I was like, well, I can't make, that fear voice was still there. Like, I can't make any money doing that. And she's like, do it. You, you, you just spent 10 years doing something for the money and you were miserable. I mean, I weighed like 40 pounds more than this. I, I, I treated myself and other people badly. I was so much pain, so much rage. She says, you deserve, you know, we got money in the bank for now. You deserve to, to pursue just what you love. Just try it. So I did. And, it, and it, I am so proud. I have, I have six teachers now teaching under me. I'm so proud of what we've built over the last seven years. I'm so proud of everyone who's gone through our program who's now working and selling stuff. And I would never be the teacher I was today if it wasn't for Battlefield Earth. Uh, all this talk about process and creative integration, and it, it all came from that pain. 
that I own. It, uh, it, it was my fault that it happened. I said yes when I knew I shouldn't. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, from that moment on, it's like when I, when I want to make an instinct or when I have to make a decision and my, my instinct is to do this, but I have this fear voice of, well, what would people think? Or you could be rejected. It's like, well, it ain't going to be as bad as Battle of the Earth, you know? And I survived that. So, um, yeah, it really softened me and it really made me, like, really pay attention to, like, my instincts and my impulses. And that, that's allowed me to be the teacher that I am. So I think everything happens for a reason. And I think that I was put on this earth to teach. And Battlefield Earth was a big part of that. And it's, it was a big part of my training to be the teacher that I am. And I remember when I first started teaching, I'm like, well, no one's going to take a class from me. Like, who's going to say, hmm, let's take a writing class from the guy who wrote one of the worst movies ever? It, I can't explain it, but ever since I started, like, my classes are sold out. We, we have waiting lists. As I said, I have six teachers that teach under me. I don't know why, but, but I think people, it's, it's all referral based. And I think people realize that what we're teaching, no one else is teaching. We're really teaching people how to change your relationship with writing, how to change your process, and how to become an even better writer than you knew you could be. We're not teaching paradigms and rules. We're actually teaching people how to be writers. So sorry if I over answered your question, no. but um, and if there's anything else that you're curious about, in terms of Battle of the Earth, I'm, I'm happy to answer it. Don't you think it's, it's almost better to have someone who's gone through so many ups and downs teach something rather than somebody who's either flatlined or, yeah, it's been just nothing but successes? Well, how's somebody gonna always, yeah. I mean, because most people's careers are never just a straight line, it's not. Yes, I agree, and I mean, so first of all, I feel, so, and just the danger of over-answering it. I think what I do uniquely as a teacher is that I can help writers recognize their process. Either you're in charge of your process or your process is in charge of you. And for so many creative people, they're not fully aware and responsible for their process. They're not in charge of their process. And I'm really good at working with writers to figure out like, where their pain and fear is and, and where they have an unhealthy relationship and where it's sabotaging them and what they can do to get to heal that and to evolve their process to become a much better writer. And part of it is the whole time I was writing, I was obsessed with process. I talked to every successful writer, every unsuccessful writer, but particularly successful writers, and I wanted to know what's your process? What's your process? Because I was, I thought if I could figure out the right process, I could heal myself. I could change my relationship with writing. It was really painful to know I was getting paid a lot of money and I was writing something, but I was never even close to my potential. Like I knew I was so much better than I was, than I was limiting myself to be. So I was always looking for a better process. And, and it never helped me. I, 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 I couldn't overcome my demons. But I, I have an encyclopedic, I, just, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of writer processes. So when I work with writers, I think especially because I, I fought so hard against my demons and I never actually overcame them, I think I'm really attuned to people's fight with their demons. And so when I first started teaching, to be perfectly honest, I taught to get out of the house. I taught because I was lonely as a writer. I taught because it was fun. I taught because I, I wanted to be a stand-up, so at least I, it was sort of a way of performing. But the real reason I was teaching 
is I wanted to help people evolve their process, heal their process. I wanted people, I want to teach people, I want to teach people how they could become, reach their full potential. Because I figured if I could do that for someone else, then I would know how to do it for myself. And what I found is I'm really good at doing it for other people and I can't do it for myself. Um, so, so yes, uh, to, to wrap back to your question, I think there are people who just know nothing but success. They're really smart. I think they can give really good feedback on a script. I think they're really smart and they can really be beneficial. But often in terms of process, they don't even know. They're doing things without knowing they're doing it. And they can't always empathize or connect with people who are struggling in certain ways. So yeah, I think the fact that in some ways, you know, I did uh, 19 for hire studio projects. I worked with great people. I got really close on some projects. I made good money. In some ways, I was very successful in terms of credits and Battlefield Earth and and enjoying writing and feeling like I was writing the best of my potential, I was a failure. So I feel like I was both successful and a failure, depending on how you want to look at it. And I do think that really helps me as a teacher because I can work with someone who's brand new, who's really struggling, as we know why they're struggling. And I work right now with a lot of showrunners who are so amazing, but they just want to get that much better. So I can, I can use all of, all of that collective experience. And I think that I, in a lot of ways, I think my writing career was there to launch my teaching career. I just didn't know it at the time. It is, yeah. A question that comes up a lot amongst creative people, do you have to live in LA to launch a career? Yeah. Especially in writing? Yeah. You don't have to live in LA to launch a career, but it's gonna be harder if you don't in certain ways. So what I would say is, first of all, think about there are stages. So the first stage is writer development. You know, most people start out, they don't quite realize how hard it is, and they have a little bit of an exuberant, exuberant confidence, which I think is great because it gets you writing. You know, I know for myself, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I don't think I would have even started. And when I first, I'm like, oh, I'm good. This isn't that hard. I've seen this is as good as that movie. And and then at some point comes the point where someone tells you and shows you you're not close to where you need to be. And then the question is, what are you gonna do about that? And so the, there's the phase of writer development. And I've talked about this in, I won't go into too much detail because it's in a lot of the videos that I've done for you guys at Film Courage, but it, it just briefly is, everyone has inherent strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots. And your job is to figure out, or have someone help you figure out what are the blind spots so they become known weaknesses. And then how do you attack weaknesses and turn them into strengths? How do you do structured exercises that are a little bit beyond what you're capable of so you're going to fail, but then you're gonna learn from those failures and eventually be able to do it so then you're gonna become better. And if you just keep doing that strategically, you can become enormously better. So the first phase is writer development. You do not have to be in LA. There are advantages and disadvantages to being in LA. There are a lot of classes and workshops and so much educational um, opportunities in LA. But the great thing with the internet, my workshops are online, video conferencing, I have people all over the world take them. I'm not the only one. There's certainly, if you wanna take classes or workshops, there are a multitude of options that you can do while you don't live in LA. Also, you know, in LA, you can go to the Writers Guild, you can go to, um, there's these events where writers talk. 
Well, if you don't live in LA, you can watch the film Courage videos. And online, you have so much access. So in terms of education now, you can do that anywhere. An advantage of LA is you're gonna be around like-minded people forming communities. You know, when I went to film school, I didn't grow up in LA. When I came down here, you know, it was a bunch of us, we all had the same crazy dream. We supported each other, we watched movies together, we discussed movies, we, we read each other's scripts, we really helped each other. And when one of us was feeling down, the other people would encourage them. You can do that anywhere in the world now with social media. Like you, you have to put more effort into it, but you can create communities. I don't think it's the same as face-to-face, -face, but I think if you live somewhere in the world, outside of LA, you can educate yourself, you can grow your talent, you can form communities, you might have to work harder at it. It might not be quite as enriching as if you were in LA, but you can certainly do all that. And let's not forget, LA is a, a high cost of living place to live. You know, for people sometimes who live in LA, they have families, they have careers, they have businesses. There's a lot of costs involved to move to LA. So you, when you're developing your abilities, getting to the point where you can write the kind of script that can launch your career, you don't have to be in LA. And there's an advantage of not being in LA because the biggest mistake writers make when they're in LA is they keep meeting people in the industry and networking and they show scripts to people before they're ready, before the scripts are good enough and they blow their first impressions and they can get blacklisted. So there, there's an advantage to being outside of LA while you develop your abilities. Now let's say a writer has gone through the developmental stage and they have scripts at least two that are good enough to get representation and to be shown and start to take meetings. So then let's call this the launching of the career phase. This is where it's very advantageous to be in LA. It's not a, you don't absolutely have to, but it's very advantageous. So if you're not in LA, what's gonna, at a minimum, you're gonna have to be able to come to LA for two or three weeks, a two or three week block multiple times a year because what's going to happen is your representation is going to take your script out to various um, um, you know producers networks cable companies streaming companies also they might be shown to showrunners and there's going to be a round of meetings 20 meetings 25 meetings some of these meetings are generals where they're like we loved your script we can't buy it but we just want to meet you and they want to see who you are want to make sure that you're someone they want to work with they want to have a relationship with you. They want to read your next script. Some of these meetings are you're going to be pitching a project. We loved your script. We wish we could buy it. We can't. But we want to be in business with you. What ideas do you have? It's easier to sell a pitch than a spec in the TV industry. Most projects are sold via pitch. So you're going on pitch meetings. And you know, you pitch at a company and then they'll bring you back to meet someone else. And someone else. So there's a, there's a series of, I met three people at Scott Free before I met with Ridley and pitched to Ridley. Or you might be meeting with showrunners who might be interested in possibly staffing you on a show. So there's a round of meetings. And at the end of that round, maybe someone's bought the script or your pitch or staffed you. And maybe not. And if not, you write your next script and you go on another round of meetings. And as my agent said, if you go through three or four rounds of these meetings and no one has hired you, and you're the biggest a-hole in the room. Like there's something just wrong with you that nobody wants to be working with you. But assuming you're not that person, three or four rounds of meetings, you're gonna get your shot. So 
at a minimum, you'd, you'd have to let your representation know I can be in LA like for this two or three week window. And then they're gonna try to schedule all those meetings in those two or three weeks. Here's a challenge. There might be some great meetings you're gonna miss because they can't fit it into those two or three weeks. The other thing is very common, the night before a meeting or the day of the meeting, they reschedule. And that's actually often a good thing because as you work your way up, you're starting to meet with more senior people at the company. You could actually have the authority to hire you or buy a pitch or the script. But they are overseeing productions. They, they have a very chaotic life and they don't have complete control over their schedule. So they're not being rude, but a lot of meetings get bumped and rescheduled. So if you're only here for two or three weeks, that meeting may never get rescheduled. Or, or it'll get rescheduled, but you may not be able to do it. Or what happened to me is I pitched to some people at Scott Free and they said, Ridley's out of the country for a month. We'll schedule when he comes back because he has to hear the pitch. And then I got a call like three days later from my agent saying, Ridley's in town today. He has a window. Can you be there in an hour? Because he wants to hear the pitch. Now, if I was back in New York or Toronto or Topeka, Kansas, that meeting doesn't happen. Does that mean I never would have sold Metropolis, the pitch to Ridley? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But the advantage of being in LA is you can do a last minute meeting and when meetings get reshuffled, you can always attend. So it's not ideal to come out. So what I would say is in the writer development phase, it doesn't really matter where you live. In the launching, if you can come here for six months or a year, it's going to be helpful. It's going to increase your chances. I know agents and managers that won't sign someone who doesn't live in LA because it's going to be harder. I know more agents and managers who would sign someone who doesn't live in LA, but if they're trying to decide between two people to sign and they, they feel pretty equal about both of them, and this person lives in LA and this person doesn't, they're gonna go with this person and not this person. But if this person is so exceptional, they'll sign them. Also, you, know, you can always do meetings over Skype, but it's not the same. You wanna be in the room if you can. I have worked with writers in South Africa, in Australia, in um, Alaska, who have launched careers that did not live in LA. They were able to come to LA you know, for three weeks or four weeks, twice a year. They knew there were some meetings that they would probably miss out on, but it was really important for them to stay where they were at until they had a career. So it can be done. It is, it is I would say it's gonna be, it's gonna diminish your chances somewhat not necessarily significantly, but it's going to diminish your chances somewhat. It's going to make things a little more harder, maybe take longer. But then again, the trade-off for, for a lot of people is I have a life here, my kids go to school, I own a home, I have a business, and I don't want to uproot everything. So it's, it's a trade-off that people have to make. I would say if you can come to LA, I would. I'd come here for the development phase, but I'd definitely come here for the career launch phase. Now, once you've launched your career, if it's feature film writing, you can live anywhere. You know, I did that for 10 years. I could live anywhere in the world. I see a lot of writers who don't want to be staffed on shows. They just want to sell original material and they'll sell two or three scripts or pitches a year. And that's a very nice income. And then down the road, if you do that enough times, one of those might get made and that could be a very nice income. So if that's the case, you have to come here for pitching season, maybe two months out of the year. I know people that are here for two months out of the year. You know, they rent an apartment for two months and then they go back to New York or they go back to Toronto or they go back to South Africa. Um, 
Obviously, if you want to be staffed on a show, you're gonna, if you get staffed on a show, you need to live where the room is. You know, and that's usually in LA or sometimes New York, but usually LA. So I would just say, you don't have to live in LA. It is helpful. It, it might expedite the process. It might make it a little more likely, might make it easier. So if you can, if you're on the fence, I would absolutely come to LA. But if you have very strong reasons why you want to stay put, as long as you can be here twice a year for three to four weeks, then you can do that. And if someone's here taking meetings and then they have additional time, yeah. what are some things they should be doing? Not just, I'm not, not sightseeing wise, but right. like in terms of getting to know the industry, feeling the temperament, yeah. whatever. So it's a great question and, and the answer might, might surprise some people or, or not. Um, let, me, let me share a big mistake that writers make. I know I would have made this, I was just lucky so I, I didn't have the opportunity to make it. So you write a script and let's say you've really written an amazing exceptional script. And you'll, you'll know because people will want to meet with you. There's a big difference between an agent or a manager trying to get someone to meet with you as opposed to people calling the agent and manager and saying, everyone's buzzing about this script. I finally looked at it. I want to meet them. And the manager's like, well, they're, they're booked for the next three weeks. And they're like, I will, I will cancel a dinner. I will cancel a lunch. Like they are moving their schedule to meet you. You'll feel it when you go in a room. It's really exciting. And what's going to happen is like someone's going to buy that script and, and, but then there's a, there's a whole process for all the deal to come through or someone's buying the pitch. And it's like, it's, it's a done deal. And then three months later, it isn't. It, it, it'll, this happens all the time and I, you know, it'll go all the way to the finish line the very last second for something you can never foresee or anticipate done happen. And it's now been three to four months since that buzz from the script. And you were sure this was landing a career and it suddenly doesn't, which is very common. And that's when your agent or manager says, well, where's your next script? And the problem is a lot of writers, they are not writing another script because they are taking all these meetings, which is a, it's a full-time thing because, you know, pitches have, take a lot of preparation. You get notes on the pitches. People are reading your script. They're asking about the first year. They have some issues. You're doing a lot of creative work in preparation for these meetings. It's really time consuming. And especially, let's say you live in LA, you know, you're working your day job trying to support yourself. Like it's exhausting and no one really has time to do this and be writing another script. And they know they're gonna launch a career, but then it doesn't happen. And then the agent manages, where's your next script? And you don't have one. And this is really problematic for a lot of reasons. For most people, when you know you're gonna get a deal and it falls through, Emotionally, that's not always the best time to be starting a new project, you know? Not always our most confident place. Secondly, you've gotta get a script really quick or the industry's gonna say, you wrote this one script and it was amazing, but you're slow. I mean, and they're gonna forget about you. Like that, like that buzz you got has a shelf life and it's less than you thought. So ideally, if everything falls apart, you have another script like in three weeks I, and I don't mean to say three weeks is the magic, but you want an, another amazing script soon. And keep this in mind. Most people don't get hired on their first round of meetings. They get hired on their second 
or third round of meetings because now they've proven they're consistent. They're not a one-trick pony and they can do this repeatedly. Because there are some people who can write one great script, but they can't write multiple great scripts. And I have seen writers who go through this round of meetings, their project is getting made. It, it, there's just not, they've got this person attached and this attached and it's a done deal and then it's not. And it's four months later and they're demoralized and they can't bring themselves to write because they feel like that was the best script I could write and it wasn't good enough. And then their agent or manager is like, where's your next script? And like, I don't have one. And they're like, when can you get me one? And it's like, I don't know. And then you don't have an agent or a manager. So when you're going out on those meetings, especially when it looks great, especially when like this is leading to a career and nothing can derail it, I don't think you should be doing the sightseeing. I don't think you should be trying to take the temperature of the industry. I think you should be taking meetings and writing. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And so if it doesn't happen in this round of meetings, you have another great script soon thereafter. And if you repeat this process, you're going to get a career. And if you don't repeat this process, then you better be really lucky on that first round of meetings. The very first place I went was Scott Free, and they bought my pitch. So that can happen. The very first place you walk in, the second place, the third place, gets a deal. It can happen. It happened for me. If it didn't happen for me, and I went through that round of meetings, I didn't have another script. That would have been demoralized and it would have been really hard to write another script and I don't know what would have happened and I might have lost my agent and I might have lost all that momentum. That doesn't mean you can't start over again but you actually start over with a strike against you because they're like, oh yeah, you're a slow writer. Oh yeah, you had an agent but you lost an agent. These, these don't look good. These are not good things on your, you know, your industry resume. So. When you're taking these round of meetings, it's so important that you write. And I would say for people, who, for people who live in LA, if possible, and I know this isn't possible for everyone, if possible, when you're going on that round of meetings and you have a partner, let's say you're married or in a serious relationship, see if you can't pre-negotiate that during that time, you don't have to work. And they work and support you and them. Or you save enough money because if possible, and I know for some people this isn't possible, but if possible, when you're going on those round of meetings, it'd be really great if you didn't have to work and make a living, that you have two jobs, those meetings and your next script. Can you recall the meeting you had with Ridley Scott? Like it was yesterday. And I will answer that, but I'm gonna be annoying and answer some, I'm, I wanna talk about the meeting I had before Ridley Scott, okay. because I think there's a teaching moment in here. So, I had um, an idea for a movie and I pitched it to my agent and she goes, oh, I think this is great. Let's take it out to the marketplace. And then she said, let's make a list of our dream places that we want to sell it. So she goes, if you could sell it to anyone, who would it be? And it was so heady. I thought like, oh yeah, who would I sell it to? And I said, Ridley Scott. She kind of laughed like, okay, yeah, we'll take it there. And then when they pass, <laughs> we'll, we'll go down the list. Then we'll go to the places that actually could. So I go into Ridley Scott and I pitch with Sue Williams, who is a development executive, smart, nicest woman. And you know, this is really important when you're pitching is you're trying to get as much information. So I was pitching her this project and at some point I saw her body language shift and I go, oh, it's, it's something off about that. And she goes, Ridley doesn't like these kind of things. I don't think 
I think this is really exciting for him, but not if it's going down that road. I'm like, what kind of things is Ridley like? And so she started sharing things. It was so helpful. So we could kind of retool the pitch together. And so she was instrumental. So when you go somewhere and you're pitching, you know, you're trying to get as much information from that person. And it's a real, sometimes writers have ego and they're like, yeah, I'm going in this place and I'm pitching the lowest person on the totem pole. Well, that's great because you get information about the decision maker. Okay, so Sue Williams helped me reformulate the pitch in a way that um, would be a better fit for Ridley. So that was amazing and that I will forever be grateful for her. Then I got brought in to pitch to uh, Mimi, who was at the time Ridley's producing partner. And this is a long pitch. This is a, almost an hour pitch. It's like a 50 minute pitch. This is not a short pitch. I always hate when people say, your pitches have to be this amount of time. There's no rules. Like, first of all, when someone says you have, you have to do your pitch in 10 minutes, people think that people will listen to you for 10 minutes. They'll listen to you as long as they're interested. And if they're not interested after 30 seconds, they tune you out. And most pitches that sell are longer pitches because people want to have the confidence that this has been worked out and what they're buying is legit. Anyway, so it's a long pitch. So I'm pitching to Mimi and it, it, it can't be going worse. She's sitting back like this. She's not making eye contact. She looks in pain. She looks like this pitch is so bad that it is making her go crazy. And the only reason I have a career is at the time, I, I wanted to be doing stand-up or improv, so I was pursuing that. And in improv, I was learning that one of my problems, my weaknesses, is when I thought things were going well, I was alive and animated. But when I thought things weren't going well, I didn't think the audience was into it. My fear of rejection runs through this. I would sort of back off and sort of tune out of the scene. I'd kind of let you guys take it. I would just sort of drop out of the scene, which is, you don't do that as an improviser. So what I was being taught is when you think things are going terrible, walk to the center of the stage, take focus and say something and just stay in there, stay alive. Don't worry about people's judgments. Follow your process. So I'm pitching and after about seven minutes, I'm like, she hates me, she hates this pitch, she's never gonna buy it, she's in pain. And that voice says, just do the short version and get out of here. This is painful for her, it's painful for you. Ridley was never gonna buy this pitch. Just get out of here, just wrap it up and go. Which I would do as a stand-up, terrible habit. But another voice said, okay, look, you're never gonna be a writer as evidenced by the pain you're causing this woman. Maybe you could be a performer. So use this as a, a way of practicing your improv skills. Stay engaged, stay engaged. That, that voice went through my head. So I stay engaged and I, I just did the pitch with gusto and focus and tried not to look too much at Mimi and see how much pain she was in and I finished. And then there was just silence. I mean, painful <laughs> silence. And then she stands up and she goes, hmm, I don't get it. And then Sue Williams said, well, what don't you get? She goes, all of it. And then she looked at me and she goes, like, something like, maybe we'll be in touch, or just something, and walked out. And Sue didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. And then I left, and I drove home, and I called my agent, and I'm like, well, you were right. Ridley's not going to buy this. And then Sue calls me, and I pick up the phone, you know, and she's like, hey, when you pitched with me, you were really good. But when you pitched for Mimi, and I know where this is going, she said, you were on fire. Mimi <laughs> loved it. <laughs> Now, there's a lesson in this, which is don't try to read the room because I've pitched to people, I've pitched to heads of studios that laughed and loved it because they, when someone's hearing a pitch, they're trying to decide, am I going to buy this? Am I going to take this to my boss? That could be stressful. 
And I pitched to a studio once where he knew right away he wasn't gonna buy it because they had a similar idea in development. So he just relaxed and had fun with me. We had a great time, but he already knew he wasn't gonna buy it. I found out Mimi like only takes one or two pitches to Ridley a year. And when she was hearing this pitch, she was like internally going, oh my God, this is something Ridley would really love. And I can't speak for her, but I'm guessing that maybe she was nervous because maybe she was thinking, do I really want to put my career on the line with this guy? Like, I was a nobody. I was in film school. I, had, I, I was, as, was like 23 and green as they came. And I think that she probably, hearing the pitch, was having an internal debate. You know, Again, I can't speak for her, but that's my guess. So Sue was like, yeah, I probably should have told you she could be a little, like that's sort of her way she listens. So don't read people's, like, I've been in rooms where people seem like they hated it, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Stay committed, have integrity, do the pitch. Okay, so to your question, sorry for the long windup. So I was told that Ridley wouldn't be back in town for a month. Mimi did have one big concern that she wanted changed. It was a hard creative thing to figure out, but I'm like, I have a month to figure it out. A few days later, I told you I got a phone call. Here's what I didn't tell you. Um, I don't drink much alcohol. Um, I'm just a lightweight. I'm, I'm the cheapest date ever. And the night before, I was at some party and I drank more than I've ever drank in my life. And it doesn't take much to get me drunk. I think that morning might have been my first ever hangover um, or was the worst ever hangover. So when the phone rang, I hadn't showered. It was, I hadn't shaven. I was hungover. It was my agent. And she said, Ridley's in town. And he would like to hear the pitch. He has an hour, he has a slot in an hour, can you hear the pitch? And it takes 45 minutes to get there to Beverly Hills from where I was. And so I said, and this is not a good idea, but I said, oh, that's exciting. Can we bump it up till two? And there was this long pause. And I know my agent was thinking, why did I sign this guy? And she said, so Corey, Ridley's in town. <laughs> he has a slot. He'd like to hear your pitch in an hour. And at least then I was like, of course, I will be there in an hour. This kind of works out to my favor. So I quickly shave and shower and on the drive, drink coffee on the drive over, I'm just figuring out how to solve that creative problem. What happened is I got there with a second to spare and they jerked me into the room with them. I never had the chance to get nervous. I never had the chance to psych myself out. I was just on pure adrenaline. And Ridley was the sweetest person ever. He came in the room, you know, and I started to like, you know, it's an honor. And it was like Blade Runner and Alien. Like I, it was a literal honor to be in a room with him, let alone the fact that he was going to listen to me pitch a project. And he just immediately said like, I, you know, we're just two creative people. I want to hear your, your idea. You don't, you don't have to be great at performing. My, my staff loves it. I just want to hear, like he, went out of his way to make me feel comfortable and that I belonged there. Because I did not feel like I belonged in a room pitching to Ridley Scott. And I was just on adrenaline with no prep, like no time to prep, you know, psych myself out. And so I just started talking. And he was just, he, he listened and he, and he nodded and he was so receptive and he was so loving and gentle. I, I'll, I'll never forget that. And he was just amazing. And then at the end, he asked the question that you always want to hear, which is, he said, so 
who else has heard this pitch? And I said, nobody, you're the first pitch, you're the first player. He goes, well, who else is going to hear this pitch? And I gave some of the places that we had meetings set up. And he looked at his staff, and then he turned to me, and he said, who's your agent? And I told him, Dan Cairns, ICM. And he called my agent, and he said, I want to take this off the market. <laughs> so that was just like, I, I really thought I was dreaming. And then I remember I was driving home in my like cruddy little car, my little Flintstones car, <laughs> my wife called it, because you had to use your feet to stop it. Film school, no money car. And I was driving on the 405, and I started shaking. I just was shaking. I had to pull over. And the thought that went through my head wasn't that I just launched my career. It wasn't that I just sold. The thought that went through my head was, I just met Ridley Scott. <laughs> so nerdy. I was just in, and not only that, once the deal was consummated, they said, we want you on the next plane to London so that Ridley and his team will develop the structure with you. And they meant the literal next plane to London. So my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, Rebecca, we were like, she's like, I'll help you pack because I don't know how to pack. And I'm like, great. And she's getting all my clothes. She goes, where's your suitcase? I'm like, what? I don't have a suitcase. Oh, no. I don't. So we ran to like Target and bought a suitcase and everything. And then they flew me first class. And I didn't know first class existed. I didn't know what first class was. I did, grew up with no money. So they kept bringing me like food and wine. And I was like, no, no, no. I, I was thinking, I can't afford this. You know, like I can't afford, I don't want to pay for all this when I land. And then at some point in London, someone said, no, in first class, it's all included. <laughs> so on the way back, I was like, more food, more wine. But yes, Ridley just, I mean, he treated me throughout the entire process. And he called me when they weren't going to make it and he explained why, which he didn't have to do. Um, throughout the entire process, he treated me like a, like a writer who, who belonged to be there. And someone that he wanted, he wanted to hear my opinions. He didn't want me just to defer to him. I mean, it was amazing. I'll forever be grateful for that. He spoiled me because at some point I was like, well, that's how everyone. Now that's how the, I've worked with some of the best people in the business. That's how they treat writers. And I've worked with people who don't treat writers that way, so. When you pulled over on the 405, do you remember, was there a song playing on the radio or? I don't, okay. I just remember, I think, I remember I was gonna crash, that's a good, Gosh, I don't remember. I just kept thinking. I saw. I came home and my girlfriend was like, "So?" And I'm like, "I met Ridley Scott." And she's like, "I know you met Ridley Scott, but oh yeah, he bought he bought it." <laughs> I was just, I was just a little film school nerd who was excited to meet Ridley Scott. We took a break for a moment, and off camera, you said something about character and dialogue and how you help your students and how, in some ways, a lot of the they're the same thing in some ways. Yeah, so, um, and I talked about this sort of more globally in the creative integration video that people can go back that I did for uh, you guys a couple years ago. I'll, I'll, I'll give a little more specifics. So this is a little more specifics on the intuitive training and, and there'll be a practical test that uh, people can take at the end to see where they're at. So, so when I uh, work with someone especially someone who needs to improve on their characters and dialogue. And I'm gonna short stroke this a little bit because you can go back to the, the creative integration video for a full explanation of the conceptual and the intuitive. But often the, the conceptual brain is very focused on um, what other people think, uh, fear of rejection, want it to be good, and, it, and it's controlling. 
And that can be helpful in, in there, there's certainly, um, when we're doing story design, we want to design stories that are going to be really engaging to other people. We want to be aware of how people are seeing our scripts. So the conceptual brain is a really important part in this. But the intuitive brain is where our authenticity comes from, our emotional authenticity. And the intuitive brain doesn't have a past, present, or a future. It just has a now. And so the first part of when I'm working with someone to get them better at characters and or dialogue, the first thing is to train them through, through dedicated practice to be able to turn off the conceptual brain and just work from a pure intuitive space. And the metaphor I would give them is imagine, sounds crazy, but you ride your horse to work. So that's how you get to work. And you have to get to work in half an hour and your horse likes to wander and wants to go grazing and look at waterfalls, but you have to control the horse because you got to get to work. And you make sure that your horse gets you to work in half an hour. In this metaphor, you, the rider, are the conceptual brain. And the horse is the intuitive part of us. And so the first thing is to release and surrender control to the horse. And let the horse go wherever the horse wants to go. And don't control it and don't even judge it. It's almost like you just get off the horse and this, you know, for this day, the horse can do whatever it wants. And so training people, and this, this is the hardest part of the training, and it can take weeks, it can take a month or two, but it's literally learning how to just get a prompt and just immediately start writing uh, without any ideas of story, without any control, without any editing, it's just letting that intuitive instinct take over and just go wherever it goes. And it's like, it's like uh, a dream in that it doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be interesting. It just has to be authentic and real. And really stress non-performance writing. No one's going to read this. So to warm up, I have people do journaling. They'll journal for 15 or 20 minutes. Because when we're journaling, especially if no one reads our journals, um, what do we navigate toward? We're not trying to be a good writer or an interesting writer. We're just trying to navigate towards the truth. You know, we're trying to find our truth. We're exploring a topic or just trying to maybe just write about how we feel. And that's non-performance writing, you know, as opposed to when we fire up Final Draft or whatever software we use, it's like, I'm going to write something and people are going to read it and they're going to judge it and they're, by, by default, they're going to judge me. Or it certainly feels that way. So this first level of training is learning how to turn off the conceptual brain and literally it's like trance-like writing. You, you eventually get to the place where you could do this for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and when you're done, you don't even remember what you wrote. It's just completely authentic, intuitive, led writing. So that's the first step. I mean, that's not getting you to great characters and dialogue, but that's the first step on the journey. To use another metaphor, I would say it's like, if I was teaching someone yoga, but they couldn't, they were so uh, non-limber, they couldn't even get down to the floor. This first phase is just getting down to the floor. It's not actual yoga, but it's getting someone so they can get down to the floor. So that's the first phase. And it's the hardest phase for most writers. So when they can get to a point where they can write uh, no judging, no editing, uh, completely intuitive, surrender control to the horse, and just trance-like writing, then we go to the second phase. And the second phase is I'm going to teach them how to write from a really, really provocative emotional feeling, you know, an autobiographical event, like 
the best, most one, you know, when their child was born or when their father died. I mean, we're talking like primal moments. And I'm going to train them how to write in a way where they let the feeling that they're feeling, this emotion, lead the writing. And they're going to do it to the point and keep practicing until um, myself or someone else, when they read these pages, they can feel what the writer felt. So they can, they can, it's a now an energy transference, an emotional transference. Um, to be able to really engage us with characters and dialogue, you're gonna have to be able to do this. Now there are people listening to this who don't need any training to do this. They are they're very deep intuitives. They, they absolutely can do this right now without any training. But there are people that need structured training to get to this point where they can let go of their control, ego, mind, work from a pure intuitive space, and write in a way where people can feel what they feel. Then we go to phase three. And in phase three, um, there are techniques to start to discover actual characters. And you interview these characters, you spend time with these characters, and there's a bunch of play exercises till the character will take over. And what'll happen is you can start writing and you just put the character in some situation and they just do what they would do and they just say what they would say and they are driving it, you're not. You have no agenda. Now, maybe what the character's doing or saying isn't particularly interesting, might not make for a great story, but the character is doing what they do and saying what they would say. Then the next phase is learning how to write where what the character is feeling, the reader can feel. So now we can emotionally bond and connect with the character. We can feel what they're feeling. That's really powerful, and again, some writers naturally do this, and some writers naturally don't do anything close to this, but through this training they can get there. Then the next phase is we will find another character that they spend time doing this training with, so they'll eventually have two characters that they always know what that character would do, they always know what that character would say, and they have, they have surrendered control to the characters. We'll put the characters in a certain situation, a certain basic conflict, and they very slowly will go back and forth writing it from inside each character. So this character would do that. What would this character do? Well, what would this character do as a response? And now the characters are creating what happens. Now again, maybe what's happening is really compelling and riveting. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's really boring. It doesn't matter. It's the characters doing what the characters would do in interaction with each other. And so ultimately, and here's something that someone can do right now if they want to test their ability. This is where I would say someone comes out the other end earning their intuitive merit badge, so to speak, which is, so ultimately where we want to get to is organic story structure, which is a, it's a term that's used a lot but not often really understood. So the way I would define it is organic means Everything the characters do, it feels like they would really do it. Everything the character says feels like they would really say it. There's never a moment where you see the hand of the writer. There's never a moment where it feels inorganic. There's never a moment where a character is doing a preordained plot point or a character is doing something or saying something because the, the writer wanted them to do or say this to drive the story forward a certain way. That's organic. Story structure means everything that's happening is 
the most compelling choice from a story point of view, and the story keeps getting more and more interesting. It's really hard for writers to do both, to do organic story structure, because in the best scripts, um, the, the scripts that can change a writer's life, you read the script, and you never see a hand, of, never see the hand of the writer, never feels um, inorganic. It just feels like these characters, these are real people, they all have a unique voice, they're all saying what they would say. They're all doing what they would do. And it's never boring. It is just captivatingly interesting. It gets more and more interesting. That's the holy grail. When a writer can do that, they are the needle in the haystack that the industry is looking for. Everyone will want to meet that writer and work with that writer. So the first step I would tell people, and this is what we're talking about with this question, is the organic. So let's take story structure off the table. Excuse me. So with organic, what I would tell someone is, this is how we know you've successfully, come, you've successfully come through the end of this training. Or sometimes writers will come to me and I'm like, you seem like you have really strong intuitive skill sets. Maybe you don't need to do this training. Let's test where you're at. So this is what I would have them do. I would have them take two or three characters that they know, they love these characters, these characters have unique voices. They know exactly what these characters would do or say. And we're going to put them into a conflict, a situation. And they're going to write, it doesn't, it's not going to be a full script. It's not going to be a whole pilot or a feature. We don't need to do that. Let's say 25 pages. And what I task the writer with doing is just let the characters do whatever they would do and say whatever they would say. Don't worry if it's interesting. Don't worry about you know, context and it being funny or dramatic. It, it could be boring, it just has to be completely organic. And when you're done, we're gonna take these 25 pages and we're gonna give it to five or six people that you trust. And you're gonna give each of them a red marker. And you're gonna explain what you did. And you're gonna say, I know this sounds crazy, but I don't care if what you're reading is interesting. I don't care if it's boring. I don't care if it's illogical. All I care about is it 100% organic. Do all the characters speak with a unique voice? Do the characters all the time feel like they're doing what they would really do, saying what they would really say? If there's ever a moment where you're like, I'm not sure I believe the character would have said that, or I don't know if the character was motivated to say that, or felt a little forced that they did that, or felt like you were controlling, or any of that, mark it, circle with red, put a red mark on it. It's okay, again, if it's completely boring, we're going for organic. And if you get the seven drafts back without any red lines, you have your intuitive merit badge, which means you are capable of organic. Now, you're not gonna take those 25 pages and go out to the marketplace with it, but you can do organic. Then, and this will, this will be a longer conversation for another day, then you have to train yourself on story structure and then it's a matter of putting the two together to have organic story structure. But in terms of character and dialogue, going through those stages and coming out where you can be fully organic is a huge move forward because now when someone reads your script, they're gonna feel like these are real people and the dialogue is gonna feel real. And these characters are gonna have emotional inner lives and we're gonna believe each of the characters. That's the first part. Then, when you can do that integrated with story design, with story structure, then you get to those magical scripts where everything is organic and authentic and it is, the story is, absolutely grabs our attention, holds our attention, 
and delivers us somewhere that exceeds our expectations. And I have seen the challenge that a lot of people make is they try to learn to do all of that at once and it's really difficult. It's like you know, trying to bowl when you have that 10-4 split, the two pins are as far apart. And if you try to, with one ball, knock both pins down, usually. So what I train people to do is just focus on organic, just be able to nail that. Then, sort of the peak in how I train writers in the workshops, we'll also train people to just do story structure with like puppets. It can be inorganic, where you know how to design the most compelling story, even if it's completely uh, inorganic and feels like you're controlling the characters. That's okay. We're not going to take that and show it to anyone in the industry. This is all training. But then when you can do story structure and then you can do organic or you can do organic and then you can do story structure, then I can teach you how to put the two together where they integrate. So I always teach these separately. Three proven techniques for overcoming procrastination to get the work done. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, it's about realizing that everyone starts out with inherent strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots. And it's about turning blind spots into weaknesses and then relentlessly attacking weaknesses to turn them into strengths to grow our talent. But all the talent in the world without dedication probably won't be enough. So no matter how talented a writer is, it's so important that they consistently work and they put the time and energy in. And a lot of writers deal with procrastination. And I... I get writers sent to me who deal with procrastination. Now, you know, if I was working with a writer, I would really want to try to find out why they're procrastinating, what it is they're avoiding, what their fear, what their triggers are. So it is a very personalized conversation, but I can share three techniques that work for a lot of people, maybe. And so hopefully your viewers, at least one of these things might be helpful for them. And I'd suggest trying all three. If none of them work for you, try to find some other things. But um, there's a good chance that maybe at least one of these things might help. So here's the first thing that um, I'd suggest trying out. And I call it breaking the glass. And so there's a tale of a, um, oh, of a Zen master, and he has his disciples. And he has the most beautiful, delicate wine glass ever. I mean, it makes people cry it's so beautiful, but like any wind it would shatter. And he's passing it around to people to in the moment with this amazing glass and this one disciple doesn't want to touch it because he's so afraid right that he'd break it and um and he and the disciple turns to the zen master and he goes aren't you afraid that you're going to accidentally break this thing of beauty and the zen master says in my mind it's already broken and so how this applies is so when a writer procrastinates almost always they're trying to avoid doing something because there's a fear or something they're afraid of. That's generally why we procrastinate. And so what I will do with a writer is ask them, so let's say they're procrastinating uh, finishing the script or starting the script or whatever. What are you afraid of? Let's say you finish the script. And, and you can say rational fears and irrational fears, but what are you afraid of? You know, and it's different for different writers. It might be... You know, the Ridley Scott deal when I wrote Metropolis, that was my first ever script. And so if it went in and they didn't think it was very good, I probably would never get another job offer because anyone who's going to hire me is going to call Ridley and say, how was Metropolis? And if they're like, eh, that's it. So I had a real fear that if this script wasn't good enough, I would never get another job. 
my agent would drop me. I was literally afraid that my girlfriend would leave me and I would become homeless and live on the streets eating garbage. I had all these fears. Now, some of those are rational and some are irrational. My girlfriend loved me. You know, she married me. She was never going to leave me because I wrote a bad script and I wasn't going to, all my friends weren't going to abandon me. But there were rational fears. It could have ended my career and my agent could have dropped me. Those are absolutely rational fears. So first thing is like write down everything you're afraid of and have fun with the irrational fears because when you write them all down, the irrational fears usually lose their power and you can say, this isn't going to happen. This is just some crazy thing in my head. This isn't going to happen. Uh, this could happen. Even if I thought it was unlikely my agent would drop me, it's still possible. So that is a, what I would say a rational fear. So pick the worst rational fear. Let's say for argument's sake, the worst rational fear is my agent would drop me. So what we often do as humans is we want to avoid pain. We want to avoid our fear. And so we want to run away from it. And that is what often causes procrastination. So the breaking of the glass is instead of being afraid that you're going to break the glass, run to it. In your mind, say the glass is already broken. So let's say the worst thing for me is my agent's going to drop me. So what the exercise is, I sit down and I, I really use my imagination to pretend that I've written the script, Ridley hates it, and my agent is dropping me. I would literally write out the phone conversation of what I think she would say and what I would say. Try to be very realistic how I think this would happen. And what I'm looking to do is to fully experience it happening. I mean, you should feel terrible. You should feel like you should really believe your agent has just dropped you or whatever it is that your worst fear is. You should experience it. And then you, know, you feel terrible. Take a couple deep breaths and then write, what would I do in that situation? What would really happen? And I realized in that situation, I would learn from my mistakes. I would write another script. I would try to get better. I would try to get another agent. There's no guarantees that I would. But I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be the end of me. And I still would be in this wonderful relationship. I have all my friends. If I had to, there's other things I could do to make a living. And I realized, like, it's not as bad as I was imagining. And, and it takes the power away from that fear. And also, what I see a lot in writers is when they do that, they're like, you know what? If I do write this script and it ultimately fails, I want to go down swinging. I want to write the script that I would write. I want to follow my instincts. I remember an agent told me that once, which is the worst feeling is when you don't listen to your instincts and you fail. If you listen to your instincts and it ends up failing, you can sleep at night and you can learn from that. So the breaking of the glasses, imagine your career is over or somebody's like, the greatest thing is I'd write this script and it wouldn't succeed and I'd, I, would, I would quit writing. Okay, so imagine that. Imagine you wrote the script and it failed. Would you really quit writing? And if you did, what would happen? And, or would you not quit? Would you write another? And experience the worst thing, come through the other end, and realize it's not as bad as I thought. And I'm gonna be okay. And then you're not as afraid of that anymore. And it diminishes the fear even a little bit. And if you could diminish the fear a little bit, that might be all you need to get back on track and write. Now, I've worked with writers with, with chronic procrastination issues, and they literally, Every day as part of their practice, 
They'll do this exercise for 20 minutes every day before they start writing. That's pretty hardcore. Most of the people, they'll do it two or three days and then they get going on the script and then they'll just use this exercise when they need to. When they're really stuck and fearful, they'll use this exercise. So that's one thing that writers can try. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it, it has worked for far more writers than it hasn't. And sometimes it just helps a little bit and that's all you need, but sometimes it helps, it, it profoundly helps the writer. So it takes 20 minutes to try it, see what happens. So that's one, one thing that someone can do. Here's a second thing that someone can do who suffers a lot with procrastination. And this one has worked for almost everybody. This has a very high batting average. So one of the things, in addition to why are you procrastinating, I'm always interested when I talk to a writer, what do you do when you are procrastinating? What do you do besides writing? And you get a very interesting, bizarre range of answers, you know, um, from watching TV to playing video games to things I don't want to talk about in this interview and, you know, lots of different cleaning obsessively cleaning the house and whatever, okay. So what I, the exercise how I'll train this writer is, okay, so I want you to like list out different things that you could be writing, not scripts, nothing with stakes, that would be really, really fun, and really engaging, you know, some people, they like write really angry letters to people in their lives that they're not gonna send or I had someone who's like, I've always wanted to be a stand-up. I don't think I'm funny, but I would love to write jokes. I had someone, uh, she was uh, in France and she was, I've always wanted to write an opera, just for like the hell of it. Um, I've had, I had someone say, I've always wanted to write a porno film. I, I just think that would be so much fun. Why not, right? So you make a list of things that and, and these are obviously gonna be things probably that you would never think you're gonna make a living doing. Well, you know, writing angry letters to your parents or people that wronged you, um, you're probably not gonna make a living doing that. So then what happens is, okay, you have your script and you're supposed to be writing your script. You have time set aside, I have this two hour block to writing my script and you're not writing. Then what you're gonna do when you procrastinate is one of these things. So you're gonna be writing your opera. You're gonna be writing your porno film. You're gonna write angry letters or forgiving letters or whatever it is. Because here's the thing. When someone's at the keyboard writing, it's so much easier to slip back into the script. So what I'm training people to do is use writing as their, as their procrastination tool from writing. So instead of writing, so you're not writing, so instead of watching video games or cleaning or whatever it is you're doing, you're not writing, so instead, you're writing. And what happens is it's so much easier for them to just slip back into writing. So that can be a really effective tool. And I found that um, that works for a large number of people. So take that out for a spin, see what happens. Maybe that can be helpful. So the third and final tool, and I'd say this is one I, I rarely need to get to, this is a little bit of breaking the glass in case of an emergency. So if it's a really, really hard, hard case to solve, the, uh, the breaking the glass of running at what you're afraid of as opposed to running away and experiencing it coming out the other end and or using writing as a procrastination tool, they're not working. So this is like, okay, we gotta do something hardcore for you. 
Then I, I use the uh, exercise of breaking the routine. And so what I do is I say, I want you to set up a space where you write. You may re- maybe you already have one. Ideally, a, a separate room. Not everyone can do that, but if you have a room where you work and you can literally have a room with a door, like an office or a spare bedroom or some part of the house. Could even be a closet. I had people like clean out a closet and use a closet because they're in an apartment. But you, it's, it, you don't have to have a door, but it's great if you have a door. And when you go in this physical space and shut the door, that's your writing space. And the rule is that when you're in your writing space, you have to be writing. You, you, fingers have to be moving across the keyboard. And at the moment that stops happening, you must get up and leave that room because that is a writing room. It is not a non-writing room. It is not a procrastination room. Now, when you leave the room, you're going to leave for five minutes and only five minutes, and I'll say why in a moment. And I want you to do something in those five minutes that can help try to get you back into a writing space. So maybe it is, maybe you do go write something, but not in that room somewhere else. Or some people play the guitar. Some people journal. Some people um, just do a a fast walk around the place. Um, Some people might meditate, yoga. Experiment with things that help get you out of your fear, that help center you back into a calm, centered space. Five minutes on a timer. You can't take more than five minutes because the part of you that is trying to, there's a part of you that doesn't want you to write. You have to understand that. There's a you know, we have this like lizard brain structure and we have a part of us that tries to prevent us from suffering. Like if you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll pull it away. Um, and that part of us doesn't distinguish between physical pain and emotional pain. So I remember when I was in high school, terrified of girls. And I remember being at the dance and I'm like, I'm going to ask that girl to dance with me. And I'm walking over there and my lizard brain's like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Everyone's watching you. Not true. Uh, And she's going to say no, maybe. And it's going to, everyone's going to ridicule you and your whole life, you're going to be known as the guy that got turned down by Jenny. Don't ask her. And it was all the, like my heartbeat, the adrenaline, the fight or flight mechanisms going off. And it was terrifying. That's why there's so much alcohol with the mating ritual because the alcohol can calm that down. So there's a part of us that doesn't want us to write because if we write, we can fail and we can be rejected and that really hurts and that can feel really bad and our survival mechanism might want to stop us from that. So the reason we only go do something for five minutes is if it's longer then the part of us that doesn't want us to write goes, oh, I procrastinate, you leave the writing room for a long period of time, I have power over you. No, five minutes. And then you go back and you write. Now, let's say you go back and you, you get up, you leave that room, and you do something for five minutes, it could be the same thing, and you go back in. The rule is you're never not writing in that space. That's a writing space. You know, just like they say insomniacs, if you're having trouble sleeping, you should get out of bed and you shouldn't stay in bed. You don't want to muscle memory train yourself that you can stay in bed and not sleep. You're not going to, you only write in that room. And when you go in that room, I mean, literally, if you have to, just force your fingers to go across the keyboard and do nonsense, because at least that is the motion of writing, and then just try to write. And if you only write for like 20 seconds, and then you like freeze up and you procrastinate, you get up for five minutes. And I have, this is really hardcore cases, but I'll have people that for weeks on end, 
they're in that room for 20 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and then they keep doing the five minutes. And if you were to watch them, they're constantly leaving the room for five minutes, playing their guitar, meditating, going back in that room. At some point, they get so fed up with leaving that room. And here's the other thing. In real life, if you have uh, someone who keeps coming into your workplace when you're writing and saying, you shouldn't be writing. This isn't any good. You're no good. Uh, This could fail. This isn't safe. And they have power over you. If every time they show up, you leave and you don't listen to them, you just walk out, over time, they're going to stop showing up. So that's breaking the routine. You just always leave that room and do something for five minutes that can help calm you and center you. And then you go back in that room. And some people, they'll do that for a week and then they're able to write for five or 10 minutes and then they start to procrastinate and then they, they, it becomes a muscle. And then at some point, they can't remember that it was ever, procrastination was ever a problem for them. I, was, I really suggest doing the break the glass exercise and the um, making writing your procrastination tool before you do this because those are quicker and, and in the majority of cases they will do the trick. But if they don't, this is a more hardcore tool that you can try. And so far I've never worked with anyone that some combination of this didn't, didn't work. It's not to say that someone listening to this will try all three and it won't work, but I think most people who are listening to this, if they struggle with procrastination, at least I hope, I hope that at least one of these or some combination will do the trick because I used to procrastinate and I hated it. it. It's like at the end of the day, I would feel so exhausted from not like the energy of not working and and resisting something. Ah, it's just it's so life draining. It's terrible. And I know people they get in the habit of that and that's just it becomes a habitual exercise for them. So these are ways that you can get out of that habit. So hopefully anyone is suffering that way. One of these will help.